0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
2: Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime.
3: People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth.
2: Everyone, pretend podcasting
1: isn't boring. Turn it off.
4: Good evening. This is Orson Welles, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Buster Keaton. He was, as we're now beginning to realize, the greatest of all the clowns in the history of the cinema. For too many years, he was under the shadow of Chaplin, of course, and for too many of his last years, he had a very bad time of it.
1: Those are the years in which I knew him. We used to work in the old stage door canteen. I was doing magic tricks for the troops, and Keaton was washing dishes, he was a lovely
4: person, the supreme artist, and I think one of the most beautiful people was ever photographed. He had his own way of working, his own way of building up gags slowly and meticulously, but this style was developed
1: later in his career.
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth, I'm your host Mike White, joining me once again is Mr. Morris Bershynski. My friends
1: call me Handy Hank.
2: Also back in the booth is
1: Ms. Heather
2: Drain. Hello, hello. On this episode, we are celebrating the great Buster Keaton, with a handful of his films. Keaton, known as the great stone face, was the director, writer, and star of dozens of two real feature films where he gained a well-deserved reputation for ingenuity, impeccable timing, and incredible stunts. We'll be discussing a few of his films from 1920 to 1928, in which he made some of his most memorable work. And though these films are over 90 years old, I'm going to tell you that we're possibly going to spoil them for you, so if haven't seen any films by Buster Keaton, please, I implore you, turn off this podcast, remedy that situation, and come back as fast as you can. We will still be here. So, Morris, when was the first time that you really became aware of Buster Keaton, and what were your impressions of him?
1: I can't quite remember when the first time that I became aware of him. I mean, he was always, I guess, this pop culture figure. But the first time I got to see any of his films – and this will be explained a little bit more in the interview that you hear in the middle of the show, was back, I think, in 1999 or 2000. Yeah, probably would have been about 2000, where a local band called the Grassy Knoll had uh, a performance on at our local Astor Theatre here in Melbourne. They were doing, like, for several years, their own soundtracks for – Uh, Buster Keaton films and I think on that first screening I took my son Max I'm always bringing him into the story aren't I we went to see I think our hospitality and one week at the Astor cinema as a double feature and I gotta say this the cinema has like a capacity of about 800 people they were filled up every session over this two-week run of those films this puts paid to the lie that an old film is hard to watch, or a silent film is hard to watch because 800 people were absolutely wetting themselves as to how funny these films were, and the blue grassy knoll just really augmented that those films really, really well, uh, and it was just wonderful. There I was with my two and a half to three year old son. And he was absolutely pissing himself. I mean, we always sort of think, well, a lot of parents think, I'm not going to show old films to my kids because, hey, they can't deal with them. But i convinced that Buster Keaton put Max on the road to a lifelong love of cinema. That was just absolutely a magnificent time. So, yeah, but probably I, 20 years ago was my introduction to actually watching his films. And I wouldn't say like I've watched tons and tons over the years, but I have seen – Quite a few, including, I think, all except one that we're talking about today, uh, I had seen before over the years. i got this beautiful box set of all the short films, which I've still yet to catch up on all of them, but there's there's a lot of gold there. How about you, Heather?
0: Buster Keaton's a figure that I feel like I always would see images of dating back to when I was real little, because my mom would always um, check out books on film history, and when we got Cable channels like A&E back when it actually was like arts and entertainment and not like pawn truckers or whatever the show. And now uh, they'd actually show like you know, old documentaries on classic Hollywood and silent cinema so I would see clips of Keaton and those images. And I was just always like, wow, that guy, is, he's so beautiful, like such a face, such a presence. And I finally got to see like a whole Buster Keaton film. And when I was about 18 in college, my film professor, Frank Scheid, showed us The General. Of course, I loved it. And I found out uh, uh, Professor Scheid actually, for years, there used to be a Buster Keaton-like festival in, I want to say, Iola, Kansas which is where Keaton, I think, was born. He was born around that area. And for a few years, they would put on like a little little film festival and do like Q&As. And Professor Scheid actually hosted these. In fact, you can go to the Buster Keaton Society's website and see old pictures of these. I don't think they do them anymore. And it's like, oh, wow, there's my professor sitting next to, you know, you know Norma Talmadge's great-great-granddaughter. You know, and so, it's so cool. And what's funny is then later on, uh, the Bluegrass seed to talk about this from melbourne to arkansas i actually did a performance at the walton arts center in fayetteville where uh, they did a live accompaniment to uh, sherlock jr some friends of mine took me to that because i know how much i love film and how much i love buster keaton and it's just been love yeah just love at first sight yeah i mean he's one of film's uh, best architects as far
1: as i'm concerned I got to just add something there in the interview that you'll hear later with Gus McMillan of the bluegrass. You know, he has very vivid recollections of uh, playing in the States and particularly playing in Arkansas.
0: Oh God. he's like, there's this horrible redhead in the. <laughs> <laughs> he,
1: he said, oh, who was the cute one in, with, with the redhead?"
2: What was your first introduction to the great world
0: of Buster Keaton, Mike?
2: He seemed like one of those presents that have been around. Well, obviously he was around my whole life. Um, I more remember Charlie Chaplin, and I remember not really caring for Chaplin and the whole Tramp character. And so learning about Buster Keaton was kind of a revelation for me, because I thought all silent comedies were Charlie Chaplin. I think it was in 87, PBS was doing a fundraiser, and they showed... The documentary series Buster Keaton, A Hard Act to Follow, which was directed by uh, Kevin Brownlow, who we talked about on the It Happened Here episode, and David Gill. And this was a three-parter. It was narrated by Lindsay Anderson. And luckily, thank you, Morris, who sent me links to that. And I rewatched it. And everything was like I had just seen it. I remembered Lindsay Anderson's voice narrating everything. It just all came flooding back to me. So there were things that I was looking for while we were rewatching these films that I was like, okay, which one is this? Which one is that? And just trying to put all this stuff together. I was really <laughs> dismayed about the general. Cause I had seen the general before But I thought that that gag from the – well, some people say it's a remake of The General. Some people say that it was inspired by The General. There's a red skeleton movie called A Southern Yankee, and there's this gag that he does where he's got half of his uniform is blue and half of it's gray, and he's got a flag that's the American flag on one side, the Confederate flag on the other, and he's there and he's marching between – two groups of troops, and then at one point the wind changes and the flag changes so that they all start hating on him because he's carrying basically the wrong flag. I thought that was in the general. So when it ended the other night, I was like, wait a second, where was that gag? (laughs) 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 But, yeah, after I saw that doc, I was just like, ooh, this Buster Keaton guy seems pretty awesome. And I think I actually saw more of the influence of Keaton before I actually get to see his work itself. I was very into Jackie Chan films in the early 90s and saw a lot of the gags that he would do in honor of Keaton and as well as Harold Lloyd. And then I would see them in the Keaton films and be like, oh my God, he did this 90 plus years ago? This is so crazy to think that all of this stuff had already been done and just the inventiveness of it. Oh, my God. It just floored me how great these
1: movies were. In rewatching The General the other day, there was that brief moment and I created a gif <laughs> for this just to emphasize – the Jackie Chan relationship. I mean, we're always sort of making these comparisons about Buster Keaton and Jackie Chan in terms of physicality of movement. But there's this one moment where Buster Keaton's character in the general – takes over the train, and he just beats the stuffing out of three guys at once, including throwing a really great backwards kick at one of the guys who's trying to get on top of him. And I thought, my God, if nothing else had appeared to had appealed to Jackie Chan, that bit certainly would have. That is so martial arts. The first martial arts film, maybe.
0: Keaton's thumbprint is just everywhere. It's, it's even in places that you wouldn't even think. Because, like, I mean, the Jackie Chan thing's obvious, but I actually – Um, In preparation for this, there's a really cool YouTube video called The Art of the Gag. And it's only like, I think like eight minutes long, but it's about Buster. And it actually like has a side by side comparison uh, of some of Wes Anderson's films. Uh, to Keaton. Now, granted, I kept being like, you know, hey, pick a better filmmaker. <laughs> 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 Guess I'm not, uh, spoiler, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Wes Anderson, but, um, but it was still, you know, that was cool to see. Even while like researching this, when I was watching, like, there's a scene in The Navigator where Keaton's character and his sort of love interest are s- stranded on this ship and they have like a system of like rope pulleys to help them like make breakfast and stuff. And I immediately, thought back to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I was like, holy shit. And that's, of course, I grew up with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I was always like, man, that's so, just love the inventiveness of it. And then you're going back all the way to the 20s and you're seeing it. And I mean, that's that's the thing. I think a lot of people, especially, and obviously people haven't really ever sat down to watch any real silent movies, kind of have this preconception that like old cinema is sort of almost, they view it almost like it's prehistoric. Like, it's simplified. That's really, I mean, of course, there's always going to be examples that that caught into that. But there's examples made now that caught into that, too, you know, just with more of a sheen to it because of Hollywood. Keaton was such a technician. He was a tactician. And because even with some of his films where the plot, you know, may be really simple his approach to fleshing it out and to fleshing out his character is anything but reading up that a lot of the gags you see, like some of those were improvised. Some of them were just stuff he just rolled with and added to it like on the spur of the moment. And it's like you want to talk about some testicular fortitude. I can't think of an actor that's got bigger balls than Buster. King. <laughs> and that needs to be on every release. If you want giant, just huevos. Approach to filmmaking, you go to Buster Keaton because he's going to bring it.
1: If I ever write a book on Buster Keaton, I'm going to have on the back Heather Drain. No one's got bigger balls than Buster Keaton.
0: It's true. It's true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what you're talking a lot about there is the physicality and the technical aspect of him. And those are definitely two very, very strong parts of his filmmaking style. And a lot of that sort of comes back to his vaudeville days. The thing that really struck me watching all these films again was just how humanitarian he is. I mean, these films, they build up to something with the exception maybe of the general where you get the initial idea of who the characters are and then it's full speed ahead action just about the rest of the film. But all the other films that we watched, plus a few others that, you know, short films that I watched in prep for this, he takes a long time, but all necessary time to develop his characters, to develop sympathy for his character. So he's a really great storyteller. It's the, you know, we, we often hear that there are some filmmakers who are great technicians and others who are great storytellers, but maybe leave the visuals. There's something left to be desired, but Keaton was to me anyway, the complete package. He could do absolutely everything. Maybe not write the music, he left that to Chaplin, but aside from that.
0: Well, and actually speaking to your point, Mike, about sort of your initial reaction to Chaplin, I read a quote where Buster was talking about comparing kind of the character he would typically play versus like the tramp. It's just like saying, well, yeah, people love the tramp, but the tramp is still a tramp. Like ultimately, he's somebody who will probably steal from you. Or something where, you know, Buster always played really like stand up guys. He always plays these very like working, you know, hardworking, moral characters that just kind of end up in these sort of exotic situations in the middle of normalcy. The General's obviously probably a bit of an exception. But I mean, and that's probably why it actually wasn't originally a big hit either, which is crazy, cause now that's always the one people talk about. You know, when it originally came out, it only did, like, so-so, and people, some people considered it too dramatic. We'll get to that in a little bit. But no, I mean, Morris, you're totally right. I mean, cause even with speaking, Keaton actually had a very, like, lovely sort of, um, bass voice. Yeah, in fact, he was one of the people that he welcomed sound. He wasn't he wasn't afraid of it at all because he had stage he had a stage background, so he was comfortable with dialogue. He had a great voice. It's um, it's too bad, like you know, he didn't. And again, you know, I guess we'll get to that in a little bit too. But yeah, it's I kind of wish he would have had equal creativity or creative control in his thirties output that he then he did in his twenties. But still, what a mark! I mean, how many people can say th- say they're an actual innovator? You know.
1: Is that a thing with MGM cinema? Because I know a lot of people complain about a night at the opera and a day at the races by the Marx Brothers and say, once they left Paramount, they were dead in the water. I mean, look, I'm a big fan of both of those MGM films, but I know a lot of people sort of say, now once MGM took over, that was the beginning of the end for the Marx Brothers. And once again, that's probably something that we'll come to later. I mean, I watched the first of the MGM films where he – only had minimal creativity, supposedly, but he sort of gradually, it got less and less. But that film was called The Cameraman. I mean, it was okay. It was enjoyable. But even I noticed that when you think about his previous couple of films as an independent, The General and Steamboat Bill Jr., there was a vast reduction in scope for what this film film was. I mean, the cameraman sort of seemed like, well, it's the sort of thing that he might have made and probably would have even made better as a two-reeler film way before he had the experience for as many two-reeler films as he made, never mind the five-reeler films. But yes, yeah, so I'm just wondering how you know, whether MGM was a studio known for basically stomping on uh, great artists' creativity.
2: Well, in a word, yes, they were. They had a reputation and Yeah, once uh, his producer, Joseph Schenck, closed book on Buster Keaton Studios when he moved over to MGM, he really had the thumb on him. We mentioned the improvisational nature of his films, he had a philosophy that the middle will take care of itself. He had the beginning, he had the end, and a lot of the gags came up while they were making the film, whereas MGM, I think, was you have to have everything down on paper, and we are going to monitor you, and you are not going to go over budget, and blah, 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 blah. It also didn't help that The General, which was, I think, his second from last feature, was way over budget. It was basically the water world of its day. Yeah, it didn't see returns like his other films, so MGM was very cautious of him running over on stuff and they put the kibosh on his creativity.
0: I mean this is the same studio that also murdered the career of other at least at least Keaton's career didn't really get murdered, but I recently read a biography on John Gilbert, who you know, was a very popular actor in the silent film era, basically kind of, you know, made an enemy of Louis B. Mayer. Now Mayer Mayer was a monster he wasn't the only one at that studio either, but he was kind of the main guy. And of course, you yeah, know, there's all these things about Gilbert's career was ruined when he spoke and like his voice was fine. I mean, the the whole thing with like, you know, singing in the rain and the it was Lena Lamont. Who, that character is terrible. That actually, that didn't happen as much as a lot of people think it was silent to sound. It's kind of, I mean, there, there are some examples, but it's, it's not as prevalent as one would think reading about how Judy Garland was treated by Mayer as a kid not a good man not a not a good company to work for yeah and it's funny cuz gilbert actually has a parallel with keaton cuz they both came from families of actors And it's fascinating to read just like, you know, like Buster's childhood, especially I think his was a little better, definitely than Gilbert's, but it's just fascinating, because like, you know, families, I mean, you're traveling, you're on the road constantly, it doesn't seem like the best place probably to have a kid, especially back then, like, being an actor and a performer was not a glamorous profession at all. I mean, it was still kind of viewed just maybe a few notches above like being a prostitute or a thief, like, (laughs) was viewed as very... Very low. Obviously, people still enjoyed it, but um, just the fact that, like, Buster developed a lot of his physical acumen as a small child by being, like, thrown around on stage literally to the point where like his parents were accused of child abuse <laughs> like like shit it's a miracle he only had he would only go on to have a bit of a drinking problem like the fact that he didn't end up on opium you know or or some shit given just everything he put his body I mean how how did he not die like some watching some of these movies some of those stunts you know and that was an era where a lot of stunt people died A lot of people died making, literally died making movies back then, because there really were no laws. It was so new. It was kind of, especially in California, viewed as, like, the Wild West at that point. Silent film was the Wild West, both creatively, but also kind of literally, because, you you know, there were no laws to protect stunt people or actors. So it's just kind of
2: like, good luck. I could tell certain times where there was padding put down, like a few times where he would... Like Especially in, uh I think it's one week, where he walks out of a doorway that happens to be on the second floor instead of the first floor, and I could see that there was a little bit of padding underneath the dirt below, but yeah, he just completely falls out of there, probably 20 feet, almost lands on his head. He knows how to take a fall and to make a fall really funny. Especially he'll do that thing where he kind of like will land a little bit on his head and his neck and he'll twist around so he he makes a fall into like seventeen points of movement it's just incredible to see him fall and to just move him his body around if we need to talk about this persona that he has we talked about the little tramp a little bit and Buster had his thing like the little tramp he's got his mustache and his cane and his big shoes and his hat and all that kind of stuff. Well, Buster had big pants and this little pork pie hat that he would wear, but it was almost all the face. And it was just so much about that face, which was both incredibly expressive and not expressive at the same time. The way that he could move his head, he was just such a great master of the double take. He could do double takes like nobody's business. And he just always seemed like the tramp is kind of that It was, it's almost like Bugs Bunny versus Daffy Duck, you know, like Bugs Bunny's always in control of things and he's always the one that's pulling the strings making other people look like fools. That's very much the tramp to me. Whereas Daffy Duck is like acted upon and that was Buster for me was he was always acted upon. Even when he was playing like a rich person, some in the upper echelons of society, those kind of things, bad things would happen to him. And it was always a matter of how ridiculous the situations would get. And he never was, in the films that I've seen anyway, he was never really a villain. He was always just this guy who shit happens to, and you root for him because you know that he's been wronged. And you're trying, you know, you really feel for his character. To your point, Heather, you really care about the characters that Buster played. Even when he was wearing that pork pie hat and just kinda out there in the two reelers, I saw one where he was a blacksmith and his boss was just a complete dick to him. So you're just like, Okay, great. Let's watch this guy. Hopefully you could just come up and you always felt for this character that he played.
0: He has such a, a vulnerability about him, you totally nailed it because he's so, he's, even though he's called like the great stone face, he's so, his eyes are so expressive. And just like when he's longing for love, you, you long with him and you want him to get the girl and. There's a few films where so much shit, bad shit happens to him. I get like uncomfortable. I gotta be honest. Like there's, there's at least, there's one moment in Sherlock Jr. I had to go to the kitchen. I've seen this movie before. (laughs) (laughs) I even rewatched it. I'm like, oh no, no, like don't, you know, there's nobody else in the world like Buster Keaton. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are influential. A lot of artists who are influential and And you could see bits of them in others like, oh, that's this generation's equivalent to so and so. And even though Buster's influenced a lot of people, I don't think anybody can touch exactly what he does. Like Jackie Chan can do the physicality and he's brilliant at it. And I love Jackie Chan, but he's Jackie Chan. Like he's his own thing. And and as he should be, you know, in my notes, I actually came up with an amazing title. If somebody wanted to do like saucy fan fiction on Buster Keaton. You know how like, he's so acrobatic, right? He's climbing on surfaces, all this. And so I figured it should be called Climb Me, Daddy. Like, <laughs> 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 But also the fact that Keaton to this day has such a huge fan base for a silent film actor to still have that kind of relevance, I mean, he, his fan base are, are to the point of being rabid. There's an amazing blog that I encourage anybody who's interested in silent film history to check out called movies silently. And for a long time, the writer put an embargo on, on covering his films, not because of Buster. She's like, no, he's I've no problem with Buster. I love Buster of his films, but his fa- some of his more rabid fans were trolling her they were coming for her. And like, to the point where she gave an example of like, you know, she'd compliment another actor. Like, she's like, you could compliment another comedic actor. And some of these fans would be like, you know, how dare you? Which is crazy. Cause it's like, guys, Buster Keaton, just from everything I've seen at read, seemed like, he seemed like a very nice man. He had people he admired. In fact, he's st- he one of the people, uh, I think along with Chaplin that stood by Roscoe, Fatty Arbuckle during the whole sort of trial a debacle where he was accused of raping uh, actress Virginia Rappe, and even though there was no evidence that he did it, you know his his career was kind of ruined. And you know Buster was one of the people that like put his own career and reputation on line to st- stand by his friend and still give him jobs. Keaton, I think, obviously was a good man, and I'm sure he's probably going to haunt me. The fact that I evoked him in erotic fan fiction. This, this is why I like people that are admirers of art, but fans anymore kind of spook
2: me. With his life it's so tough too. Like I thought maybe the person had written something and then a thousand people came and corrected her, you know, as as people like to do on the internet. Because Keaton's life is so difficult to figure out. I mean, he had his versions of stuff and his versions would change after a while. I've read at least, gosh, probably two or three different biographies of him where the name Buster came from has changed so many times. He had a press agent. I want to say the guy's name might have been Harry Reid or something like that. And the press agent, one of his things was to take whatever the truth was and to spin it and put out stories like you would do like you still do today but especially in the early days of movie magazines and reports and these things and you build those myths of your people the people that you represent you know you create the rudolph valentino mystique around rudy valentino you take buster keaton and you recreate his life you add to the maybe the drinking that his dad did, maybe the pratfalls that would be near child abuse that uh, Buster was undergoing when he was younger. You do whatever you need to do in order to get people to enjoy your client. And so you've got all of these different stories running around. So I will never try to say, oh yeah, for sure this happened in Buster's life because I don't know if anybody really remembers now for sure what actually happened with this guy
0: see, you think about like the nature of human memory for regular non-famous people can be tricky, even, you know, even and maybe especially when people aren't even trying to be untruthful or anything. It's just sometimes we ourselves misremember things. And then you kind of add in somebody being in the spotlight, especially coming from, like, say, a family of vaudevillains. villains <laughs> I, I don't I'm not saying they're vaudevillains. There was a wrestling tag team called the Villains. I think that's why I slipped up on that. But no, Vaude, Vaudevillians and actors where, you know, it helps to kind of... You're selling yourself as an artist. So it helps it's it, it helps to jazz up your story. And I think in some cases, I don't have a buster, but I think in a lot of cases with some people, sometimes, like, it's almost one of those things where if you repeat something enough, it becomes your truth, even if it's not really the truth. I kind of think the truth is like a piece of glass and then you get humans around it. And all of a sudden the glass has got sticky thumbprints and smears, like somebody's three-year-old threw a slice of cake at it. (laughs) Like it just, it's going to get messy. And no, I mean, I will say like with the movie silently uh, site, like she does impeccable research. Like she will buy like old books and old photo play magazines. And and cross-read that with everything. So it's just, um always going to be somebody to complain in life. When it comes down to it, what really matters is the art. The fact that Buster's, he has films that generations have, have come and gone between those films first, you know, debuting in a theater and now, and those films are still potent. They're still great. They still crack people up. They made Morris's little kid laugh, which is awesome. That's incredible. Some people are icons because of good press and good timing. But then some people are icons because they deserve it. And they have that kind of rare spark of creativity and and charisma and intelligence. And that is Buster Keaton.
1: To the point about people complaining on the internet. I mean, I agree, that's a rarity, isn't it? But I read, I read an article Uh, Well, actually two. One was one that you sent us, Mike. I read this one article that was talking about the scores that are on Buster Keaton Films. And if you go to follow a lot of these films on YouTube, you can probably catch three or four different versions, each with a different soundtrack. And there was this one article that was been written by about four, or a conversation, I should say, transcript, about four or five different film critics. And one of the versions was scored by um, an ensemble called the Club Foot Orchestra. And I can't remember, it might have been Sherlock Jr. that they were talking about. And they didn't just say, you know, the score didn't just suit the film. They were absolutely rabid about it. They thought that as good critics, it was their place to just tear into these musicians and say, what a shitty and inappropriate score it actually was. I acknowledge that the Blue Grassy Knoll score was much better. Like, there was, you know, one point where in the film where Buster is trying to search for money in a pile of rubbish outside the cinema. And in the Clubfoot version, it's very much, hey, this is funny, right? It, the music is really giving away too much. It's not letting the audience decide for itself just how funny this is, whereas the Bluegrassy Knowles music is a lot more natural. It just accompanies the film and you follow Buster's antics visually. But I felt that the, the music, the Clubfoot music was good, but you know, it was it was adequate. It was okay, but certainly not worth – being ripped into by a pile of academics. The other point that I found absolutely amazing was in an article that you'd sent, Mike, I'm not sure if this is an academic article, but it wouldn't surprise me, where this chap went and described that the the setting for a silent movie, it has to all be visual. If there's a score, fine. But he hates it when on a print, if they try and include – the occasional sound effect, like someone knocking on the door, you hear that. And I know that there's moments in the Blue Grassy Knoll soundtrack, there's moments where they're doing their own foley within the music. This guy, it was almost like he was losing his lunch over that. And I'm thinking, calm down. I mean, I'm just glad that I'm a film fan, not an academic, because I can't see myself in a life where that sort of thing really increases my blood pressure. That article was just shocking to me.
0: Well, also, I don't know if anybody's like made these folks aware that it's a silent movie. You can literally mute it and play your own music if you're not happy with it. You can even do that with sound films. Like, say, for example, if Zack Snyder's The Watchman's on and Hallelujah comes on, I go to the bathroom. It's easy. Life is so, is so much easier than people realize sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the problem. It's just, I think with any sort of fandom is people, You know, it's good to love things and want them preserved, because I think that definitely includes the three of us. But we don't own these films, and neither do these critics. These are works of art unto
2: themselves.
0: It's a fucking silent movie, just mute it. Like, put on your own music if you hate it. (laughs) It's just literally a silent movie.
2: I do have to warn folks, because there are many versions, like like we're talking about with the soundtracks, there are many different versions of the soundtracks out there, but there are very many versions of the video for this as well. I think, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Kino is the gold standard when it comes to this, because every Kino version I saw looked gorgeous, looked almost like these prints were brand new. There were some knockoff DVDs that I bought, and I swear one of them might have been called S'mores or something like that. And there was a two-disc set, and it was uh the Navigator on one... Or no, sorry, it was Steamboat Bill on one, and it was the General on the other, and there were two shorts per disc. And those shorts, one of them looked like it had just been beat to shit. It just looked awful. And then you see... The next short, and it had been restored, and it was like, oh my god, this is such a breath of fresh air. Definitely your mileage may vary depending on where you get these things from. Like, if you go out and watch them on YouTube, who knows what you're going to get. But there are good versions of these around. So if you start to watch one and it's not good, turn it off. Go find the good version because
1: it does exist. There's a beautiful Eureka box set of all the short films. Highly recommend that one.
0: Yeah, I I think it can't be stressed enough that it's really good to support companies like Eureka and and Kino, especially because Kino, you're right, my Kino does exquisite work. Because it's companies like that, that help keep a lot of silent films, not only kind of better preserved, but also out there circulating. You know, anybody listening, you're probably aware that the bulk of silent films that existed are no longer here. We've lost a large part of our of our history as a of cinema in this country because of things ranging from prints literally exploding from the nitrate to just bad upkeep film for a long time was viewed as a disposable medium it was not viewed as an art form it was just viewed as something fun to entertain and not keep anymore. That's why it's important for the prints that we still have of these films to to take care of them and keep them circulating and, and, and support companies that are doing that.
2: Another thing that I really liked about some of these prints as well is the tinting. There would be some that were just so beautifully tinted. I was watching, I think, Seven Chances last night. And... The tinting at the beginning, there's a montage of of, uh, Buster and this woman and her dog. And each time they go back, the dog is bigger. Outside of this place where the woman lived, it was tinted, and it looked almost like they had tinted the roses and the rose bushes. It almost looked like it was color film. It looked so gorgeous. And then the use of tinting to show us outside nighttime, different lighting schematics, just all of this stuff that you can really see how thought out the tinting was and how much it brings to the black and white. It was just some of these things just were breathtaking to see these beautifully restored hand tinted or tinted films. It just really will knock your socks off
0: especially in the general. There was some tenting, And also just some of the lighting in that movie, I just thought was gorgeous. It really made you just like, oh, I don't know. It's funny. My husband actually made the comment. He's, he's like, you know, it's so refreshing to see something not made currently. It's a different kind of eye candy for you, especially like, you know, when we all get so used to things that are digital or CGI or whatever. Like it's good to it's it's good and healthy to kind of go back and see that attention to detail because that's a thing like, you know, with silent film not having dialogue that yeah, you could hear, there was so much more of an emphasis put on the visual too. And that's why you tend to see a lot of actors in that era that visually, you know, some of them might not even been like the best actors, but they have this these faces, these amazing faces. And I, I love that.
1: I also love visually in these films, the frame setup, how a shot is going to look. And it's just amazing that in this very early day of film, I think, you know, Heather, you were speaking before about the influence beyond the physicality that Buster Keaton must have had on future generations of filmmakers. Well, I'd say he probably has as much to do with future filmmakers thinking about how they frame a shot and it was often for the sake of a gag so for instance you know spoiler alert the end of one week that gag set up with the train as it and they've got their house set up on the track we see the train go past and it's on a different track so it doesn't go through the house and then a second later a train from an opposite direction that we never see go through the house so it's beautifully set up visual cue for the gag And that's something that he realized as the cinema was a medium that he couldn't use in Vaudeville. I I think I remember actually reading in this biography that I read of him by Marion Mead that his father, who ended up appearing in his films, was at first very standoffish about the whole idea of films. I'm not sure if it was because he thought it was a passing fad or he thought it was beneath him. But in the end, he ended up playing quite a few roles in Buster's own films. But Buster realized how you presented something was exceptionally important. And I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of other directors who we could credit with that sort of thing. But just there was so much going on in all of these films that we watched that just looked beautiful and there was a moment in sherlock jr and i'm sure we'll talk more about this when we get to the film but there's the moment which i'm sure woody allen was paying strong attention to for the purple rise of cairo when the projectionist is climbing into the movie that we see within our movie or rather he's dreaming that he's climbing into the movie that we see in uh the major film and we just get this one shot from the back of the cinema We're seeing the whole time him on a cinema screen with the audience of the cinema. And a shot like that lasted, I think, something like two, three minutes. The single shot, but Buster knew that's how we tell the story. That's how we get these gags across. And I don't know that any contemporary director, and, you know, I mean, shoot me down in flames if I'm wrong, but I don't think that there are many directors who would allow a single shot like that to go on for as long as it did. But he knew that that shot told the story. And I was just really so impressed with his composition style across all these films. I
2: think Joe Keaton, Buster's father saw the writing on the wall as far as films being that threat to vaudeville to the point where vaudeville was almost supplanted by it. And they would, distributors would show a movie and then have an act, or have an act and then show a movie. So they really started to eat into vaudeville's business so much. And I think that was one reason why he hated it. Though Buster, luckily for all of us, embraced it. I think it was like through a chance meeting that he ended up meeting Roscoe Arbuckle, and they started to work together. And you talked about that loyalty that he had uh, even after the scandal that Arbuckle went through. Buster would have him come and, and work with him. I don't think that it was a very fruitful relationship. I think that Roscoe was going through a lot of troubles after the trial and all of that. I mean, his career was not necessarily completely ruined, but he was no longer on top of the world, that's for sure. But Arbuckle was one of the first people to work with Keaton and to bring him in. And I'm sure that you guys saw the scenes from The Butcher Boy where it was Keaton on screen one of the first times and just that physicality, this whole running gag of molasses that is spilled on the floor and molasses that is in Buster's hat and Buster trying to take the hat off to doff to his chapeau, him trying to walk and the way that he pulls his own foot up from underneath him and falls. I mean, just these amazing falls that this guy does that he just threw himself around so much. It's amazing that he didn't break every bone in his body. It's amazing. He's got this beautiful profile. He, I talked about Valentino earlier. I think he could Valentino run for his money. He's got this gorgeous aquiline nose and I'm surprised it wasn't just bashed to shit after all the times he probably got hit in the face over the years.
0: How do you look into my soul and see my truth so beautifully? <laughs> <laughs>
1: The book I was referring to earlier makes a strong case that basically the the author thought that Buster's parents had been very negligent in what they were doing with Buster from a very early age. For those who don't know, he was being thrown about, really thrown about across stage, sometimes fell in the orchestra pit, but mostly he'd be thrown across the stage and and they basically thought, wow, the audience likes this. We're going to keep on doing this. And he fell and should have by rights, broken every bone in his body. I mean, this is like from when he was four or five years old or something like that. There were times as he grew older when I think it might have been in New York that there was um, some government body that tried to get Buster pulled out because they were sort of thinking, well, he's being employed to do a job that is not legal for someone his age. And Buster himself, you know, he didn't care about all the physical. He show business was in his blood. That was it, and he sort of saw sort of rolling with the punches, rolling with the falls. That was his thing. And in interviews that you can see on YouTube, he's actually saying, "No, no, my folks were great. No, I loved them. You know, it was a, it was a great education doing the vaudeville stuff. But, but you know, the, I don't know if you could say objective or subjective." biographer is saying one thing, but you sort of wonder, was there did Buster really believe everything that he said? I mean, you sort of got to wonder, I mean, it gave him great freedom of movement once he did go into films and he thought, right, well I've suffered for all this. I can do anything. I'm invincible. There are stories that he did get injured a lot on his film sets. Sherlock Jr., I think he went partially deaf or something like that from water spilling on him at some stage. Yeah, the, his, at least publicly, his perspective was that, no, that was all a great education. I didn't mind being thrown about, but this article, even acknowledged it. Yes, he'd said that, but no, couldn't possibly be.
0: It's crazy, because I think we've all read so many different types of injuries or potential injuries he had. But um, the water gag in Sherlock Jr., I read that it actually broke his neck. But he didn't realize it till like years later when he was getting looked at, which is terrifying. It is a huge miracle that a he didn't die in the twenties, and yeah, or end up paralyzed, yeah, you know, or
2: something horrifying like that. I don't want to harp on this whole Jackie Chan thing, but just the parallels of like Jackie going to the Peking Opera School and the way that that was partially torture, partially amazing training for what he would do later on. It sounds very much like Buster's vaudeville days, but the thing that always gets me with Jackie is okay, there's a fence and Jackie needs to jump the fence and he doesn't do it in any sort of sloppy way. He always does it in like this most beautiful athletic way that you can like bounce from one shoe to another and manage to jump over this fence. And Buster Keaton is exactly the same way I was watching. And I guess we should probably talk, start talking about the movies a little bit. I was watching, well, this is, is jumping ahead, but I was watching seven chances last night. And there was a moment where he just pops over a fence and just does it so beautifully just this little hop that he does is terrific i don't i don't know how high buster could jump but he just seems to be able to fly at will and i know it's not ropes he is just literally jumping it is is fantastic and the other thing i wanted to point out really quickly is just He's not the tallest man in the world. He's also not the shortest man in the world. I can't remember. Maybe he's like five, six or something. So probably, you know, towers over Tom Cruise, right? But he would always, always have these amazing other actors that he would work against that were a head, two heads, three heads taller than him. And he always knew that in order again for us to have sympathy with these characters, we needed to see him being this little man at the center and being surrounded by these bigger men that look like they would always be able to just pick him up and eat him if they wanted to.
0: In the general, because there's, there's actually, there's like one scene where at first, like there's a distant shot and you almost think it's a little kid with the, and it's like, Oh wait, that's Buster. (laughs) But, But it also makes when he has to fend for himself, even more impressive, you know, and it's not like, and it's such a good mix of vulnerability, but also sort of just, good physical strength, and good wits, too, because it's not like he's like, he's never like supernaturally strong against anybody. Like a lot of it's just him being able to kind of outwit and be quick on his feet, which kind of makes him more impressive. I think if somebody's almost like too strong, they kind of lose a little bit of their humanity. They're not really human anymore. To us as the audience, we're we're Buster's the most human.
1: I think the one film out of this group of films where his – the lack of his height, lack of stature – is Steamboat Bill Jr., where the fact that he comes off the train, the father and son haven't seen each other for years, and he's wearing a rose to be identified, and his father's disappointed that he's got this, you know, the father's this big strapping physical guy who runs a riverboat, and in comes this foppish university-trained son of his who he hasn't seen for years, and he's extremely disappointed. that He falls on his ass, and he looks like a fop, and that's possibly the one film I can I think where his lack of height lack of muscular stature really comes into play, but of course he makes that work for him in ways that no one else could.
2: why I chose these 1920-era films, and I only chose a handful of them because I know it was a lot to ask for us to watch. I think it's like four features in a short. It's a lot to watch for an episode. These features in this short... I can't say that I chose them for any particular reason. It wasn't just like, well, this shows this and this shows that, et cetera, et cetera. I just kind of randomly chose five films from the 1920s because that was seen as his era. This was when, Buster Keaton's studio started and ended. You know, he was in some shorts beforehand, but they were really Roscoe Arbuckle shorts. Eventually, they became Buster Keaton shorts. But in the 1920s is when he gained that independence, when he signed the contract so that he could be his own artist. So I want to talk first a little bit about the short One Week, and this is the one short that we'll talk about. And for me, this one shows a lot of the whole idea of Buster Keaton and gizmos, the whole plot of this film is about Buster and his new bride getting a, they get a a plot of land from an uncle and a, build your own house kit with what, like eight or 10 boxes of all this stuff. And there's a rival there, Handy Hank, <laughs> who again is one of these guys who probably stands two heads taller than Buster. And I forgot about the beginning of this, the whole idea of them getting to the lot. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in this beginning where Handy Hank is actually driving them from the church to this place after they've just been married here we have one of our first amazing car chase type things where the bride moves over from one car to another buster's moving from one car to another can't quite make it from one to another gets hit by a motorcycle and ends up on the
1: motorcycle it's just like what the hell am i watching this is amazing stuff already The other thing I liked about the opening of that film was there was just like a blink and you miss it, but really nice little gag where the first shot you see is of Buster Keaton and Sybil Seeley, the actress playing his bride, have just come down the church steps. And all these people have thrown shoes. I don't know if that's a sign of good luck or something like that. And he just bends down and has a look and says, oh, this is a nice pair of shoes. I think I'll take that with me. It's just a really nice little quiet moment. And that says everything to me about the way how we worked. It was the big physical visual gag. And then there was this small moment. He took humor from absolutely everywhere. And yeah, that was just a, a wonderful little blink and you miss it opening gag.
0: Do we think the assemblage of their house is? I like to think it's kind of foreshadowing to things like I- IKEA, where you're trying to piece things together with these ran these numbers, and it's just you feel completely lost. Like this is, I I, I thought of that with the whole house. So the fact that like that the house they built was like an was like a a real like it wasn't just a model. It's just this is like Fitzcarraldo, but funnier.
1: According to something i would read, it said that this film was actually modeled after an educational film that the Ford Motor Company had made for married couples on how to build their own home. Well, this is how you don't do it. Yeah, there were a lot of contemporary to 1920s jokes
2: that were out there. There was even one – I know what it was. It was in Seven Chances where he – Goes to go. He's he's looking for a woman to marry, and he goes into this place where it says uh, this big sign that says "ladies" on it. And then this guy moves out of the way, and there's a sign that you didn't see. And I can't remember the person's name, but it was a famous female impersonator from the 1920s. I had to look up this person. Julian, someone. I had to look him up because I was just like, who is this? Why is this the joke? So luckily with something like that, you can still find stuff. But there were other times, a couple times where I was just like, okay, I don't get this. I'm sure in 1920-whatever, if I watched this, I would have been right there for it. But luckily, I would say 99% of this humor is pretty timeless. Like this idea of, like you're saying, Heather, this IKEA from hell set. And it doesn't help that Handy Hank changes the numbers on the boxes so they don't know which parts go with which. You would think maybe they would get clued in a little bit before they're done with the the uh, house, but you can tell they're completely out of their depth, even with Buster sitting on a piece of wood that's sticking over the side of the house and sawing it. So he's basically sawing himself off of the house. It just <laughs> takes this incredible 20-foot, again, fall and it's just It's like amazing that this guy lived to see the
1: 1960s. Do either of you guys know whether this might have been one of the first instances of breaking the fourth wall in a film? There's that wonderful moment where Sybil Seely goes to have a bath to clean herself off and the soap falls out of the bathtub falls on the floor she's got to reach for it and she looks at the cameraman the cameraman puts his hand up on the camera so we can't see her breast and then takes it up and she's back in the bath and gives him a smile as if to say thank you and i mean is that a first instance in in cinema of breaking the fourth wall do you know
2: I would go all the way back to the Great Train Robbery with the very end of that when the gunfighter shoots at the camera because he's completely shooting at us in the audience, it looks like.
0: Yeah. Yeah, my gut is definitely like there probably are other instances too, but I will also be the first to admit that I haven't studied <laughs> like this as much as I probably should, but but it's still it is such a cute cheeky gag and i love it and i just love the fact that like she is such a sweet character you're always kind of at least me i'm always kind of primed to be like oh god are we gonna get like a nagging wife character and she's like so like she's such a good partner to him in one week like she's you know painting a little heart on the house and she's just you know kind of rolls through the craziness with them and honestly i think it's more patient than a lot of people probably would be male or female you yeah, know, neither gender, like anybody, any human being, would just at some point be like, "Okay, this this house is jankety, honey." Like, come on, look at this. Like, this does not look solvent. <laughs> but she she just goes and rolls through the punches. Like, she's so she's so sweet. I really liked Sybil Seely and the in this film.
1: I was just sort of thinking as well that out of all the love interests in all these five films, I think she was possibly the only one who was like an equal partner to him uh she's building this house with him as you say heather she she's the one who draws a little love heart on the house and they're both madly in love with each other but they go through all the labor together and they go through all the hardship of the hurricane that comes later on in the in the film but when you look like in uh uh, catherine mcguire who plays the the love interest in sherlock jr she loses heart in him she loses faith in him because she thinks that he's gone and stolen this watch from her father, and uh, Ruth Dwyer, who plays uh, his love interest in Seven Chances, I mean, you know, to be fair, she she thinks that all he wants to marry her for is the money, but he's loved her forever. Marion Mack, who plays the love interest in the General, says to him, "Well, I don't want to have anything to do with you until you enlist in the army." Marion Byron in Steamboat Bill is never disappointed in, but she's really a minor part of that film when we get to it. That's more a father and son film rather than a romantic story. But I, I like the fact that Sybil Sealy was a complete equal, maybe not necessarily in a humorous sense, but character wise, she was Buster Keaton's character's complete equal in that film.
2: There are so many times that technology plays a part in his films. I mean, the idea, the the stuff that was very similar to Pee Wee's Playhouse, all of these like little gaz- gadgets and gizmos and things like that. That's basically what this house is. This whole idea of this put-it-together house, and the way that at one point he's on the top of the house and the wall flips over and he goes with it is <laughs> great. Even to the point of um, the piano delivery man who basically tosses a piano on top of him, and when he's trying to Pull the piano into the house, and he takes the rope and puts it up over the chandelier and starts pulling. And you have that rubber ceiling basically <laughs> that's just coming down. And just pulling, 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 and then the person who's upstairs who's falling into the hole—it is just fantastic. And that's what so much of this is—is is just great. I don't want to call it prop comedy, because it's not necessarily prop comedy. It's basically the the world is going to bend to his will, or those moments when it doesn't bend to his will is when he's in trouble. But this whole house is just this example of all of this craziness, and he loved to do that. He had at least, because I think there was like a, a kind of a House of Tomorrow short that he was in. He was in one called The Haunted House, and so he would have these gags, especially with stairs turning into a flat surface. He doesn't have that in here, but there are a lot of gags about what's upstairs, what's downstairs. Going from upstairs to downstairs, I talked about how there's a door that should be on the first floor, but it's on the second floor that he manages to walk right out of. So I love that it's him against nature a lot of times, because here comes a hurricane that's going to happen in this movie. There's another hurricane that happens in Steamboat Bill Jr., but it's the weather, it's the world, and it's also all of these gadgets that just don't work like they're supposed to. Because we're going to talk about trains, ladies and gentlemen, and trains are through so many of these movies. It's incredible.
0: Oh, yeah. If you if you played a drinking game with as, as much like if you took a drink every time you see a train in a buster keaton film you're gonna legally die you will die it's it's like the only other like comparison to be the who's afraid of virginia wolf drinking game don't do that either people like we want you to be safe and enjoy cinema with us <laughs> and not be in the hospital because you did this drinking game i love that you pointed out because you know keaton the thing that i just find so like one of eleven things I find enchanting about him is there's always this sense of whimsy and also surrealism. Like some of his gags are and especially when we get to Sherlock Jr., I mean it's almost like are you been wow all of a sudden? Like it's so like he he's so out of the box with his ideas, which I definitely think kind of sets him apart from other American comedians and as peers. And that's not to take anything away from guys like Chaplin or Harold Lloyd among others you know laurel hardy they're all great but keaton's just so his imagination i mean it makes sense to me that he would go on to work with the marx brothers because i would say of course their approach is totally different but the marx brothers also could be like freaking surreal like just so like like hilarious like dada anarchist (laughs) total comedic anarchist in the best possible
1: way That's often the criticism that's aimed at everything beyond Paramount, is that they lost that sense of anarchy. I don't necessarily know that I completely agree, but I do think the Paramount films and the first two MGM films are the funniest. But I think the common theme is the Marx Brothers, they had the greatest sense of anarchy, and they didn't feel that they needed to make nice with everyone by the end of the film, which was often a theme in the post-Paramount era.
2: I mean, I can see a dotted line between – Buster Keaton, and a Harpo Marx. Now, Harpo could be mean at times. There were times where he was, you know, trying to get things over on people, you know, the whole idea of like, cutting people's ties off, uh, stomping his feet in their lemonade jars, those kind of things. But the sweeter moments, the more surreal moments, especially, you know, the whole, like, Uh, what are you doing trying to burn the candle at both ends and he just like pulls a lighted candle out of his coat and it's burning at both ends that's a very buster keaton kind of thing like the idea that you can have a candle that burns at both ends you can have one that you just pull right out of your pocket that's very very buster keaton with the idea of yes the surrealism because that is definitely something that runs through here and that's I think one of the reasons why I attached so heavily to this guy was because of that sense of anarchy, the sense of surrealism, because you never really know what's going to happen. I mean, we don't see, you know, just to stay on one week. Okay. When they reveal the house and it's all screwed up, it's like, okay, I could. I guess I could kind of see that happening. I couldn't see it happening as bad as it was. And then when the house gets hit with the hurricane and it starts to spin around and it's just like, what is happening? This shouldn't be happening at all. This is not right. And yeah, that he can just take it and take this house, put it up on four barrels and be able to roll this thing (laughs) across town, across the railroad track that the car can't pull it anymore. So he takes a nail and nails the back seat of the car to the house. And then when he hits the gas on the car, the bottom of the car moves out and the, and the, uh, the, the seat is still there attached to the house. I mean, these are things that shouldn't happen, but he can make them happen. And you just go, yep, that's going to happen to Buster because everything goes wrong for this guy.
0: That gag, when he <laughs> the car drives off, it's so good. And also, I just love that the house, for anybody who listening to this, hasn't seen one week, the house, which, first of all, go see it. It's brilliant. But also, it looks like if, like, a fun house and a German expressionist house had a baby. Like, you you halfway expect to see Werner Krauss from Cabinet Dr. Calgary come shuffling out, It's, oh, it's so, it's so good. It's so good.
1: The house actually looks like it has a face, but it looks like a warped face, something like, I don't know, out of a Picasso painting or something. But that's, we're often saying that a city or some inanimate object uh, is like another character in a film. And definitely the house is. It would have been anyway, even if it didn't look the way it was, but I think it's not by accident that, this warped sort of house that he ends up building because of handy Hank's mischief. It looks like a face. As I said, it looks like a face out of some surrealist painting.
2: I want to move on to Sherlock jr, which was 1924. And this was one of his early features. And I've always considered this to be one of the most self-reflexive movies because more, as you mentioned earlier, the whole idea of him walking into the screen There's a whole series of gags that happens once he moves into the world of the screen. Because at the beginning of the film, I mean, it's very kind of like a little bit of a melodrama. There's this whole thing of he's working at a movie theater. He's studying to be a detective. He is very broke there's candy in the candy store next door to the theater that's uh I think there's a $1 box a $2 and a $4 kind of thing no it's a $3 and a $4 and he's got $2 on him of course there's a great series of gags where he finds a dollar in this garbage that he's cleaning up from the movie theater and it just builds and it goes ways that you would not expect it to go at all <laughs> This whole thing. Finds this dollar. He's so excited he can go over and buy this $3 box of candy for his sweetheart. And then this woman comes up. She's like, hey, I lost a (laughs) dollar.
1: Describe it for me.
2: Yeah, describe it for me. And that was great, too. Buster Keaton didn't use title cards very often at all because we're talking about how expressive his face is. He... There are very few title cards, but that was one of them. Describe it for me. And she describes it, talks about the eagle that's on the back, all this. Okay, so he gives her a dollar back. Then he goes back to the garbage can, (laughs) and this other woman comes up. (laughs) Very plain, old lady, you feel really bad for her. Hey, I lost a dollar. And then I love that he just... Takes his hands and makes that little eagle sign, and then like nods his head. He's like, "Okay," and then gives one of his dollars to this old lady. This tough comes up, and as soon as the guy comes up, Buster just hands him the dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, and gives the dollar back. He goes rummaging through the garbage, finds this wallet just just stuffed with money. <laughs> Oh, it is so good. And it's just those beats that he's doing in the building, the building of the joke. it's just, oh, and he does that consistently through this.
0: If I was going to pick any film to kind of be like to sell somebody who hasn't seen a Buster Keaton film this would be to me like the one I'd give to them because it's it's perfect it is so perfect and I mean I love the others of course but just I think this one like I love the actors around him too and like you have Ward Crane playing the sheik or the local sheik which I was like that does not look like Sheik. <laughs> of course I'm thinking yeah you because know, he just he looks like this like very handsome, tall, snidely whiplash kind of fellow. Of course, he's a rogue and a thief, and he's trying to take Buster's girl. Now, Morris, I will have to disagree with you. I love Catherine Maguire in both this film and The Navigator. And I actually think she might be my favorite Keaton actress, because in the, in this film, yeah, initially she, you know, her and her family just assume because he's been framed, that he stole... A watch and pawned it but she's the one that actually takes the resources to go research the receipt and actually investigate and and the fact that also i have to take a side note that he's carrying around a book that says how to be a detective
2: yeah i love she's the better detective than he is she's the one that solves the crime really him going into the movie which is really at the heart of this Because he's been framed, he's lost the girl, he pretty much thinks that he's lost everything, and he falls asleep while he's showing this film. And I love the double exposure of him coming out of himself and interacting with himself, which is great. And he will do that in other things as well. I can't remember which short it is, where he is like all seven members of an orchestra, plus he's everybody that's in the audience.
1: That's the playhouse.
2: So good. And and so it's him interacting against himself, and then his astral form goes into this movie. And you talked about that scene of him going in, he gets shoved out of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) He goes back into the movie, and then that begins this most incredible sequence of match-cut editing. I absolutely love it. And again, it is... Buster against the world, and the world is changing. The world is the world of a movie. So this whole thing of him, he starts one place, he goes to step on something, and then it changes, the whole background changes, he stays the same, and he falls over. And it's just this, like, one thing after another after another, and it's just the movie just keeps changing, and every time he thinks he's got his bearings, it shifts on him,
1: and he, again, becomes the butt of the joke. Pretty much in 60 seconds, that Sequence explains, like I think, everything in every Buster Keaton film. Just when he has his bearings, something goes wrong with him. I mean, it's one moment he's finding his footing on the edge of a cliff. The next minute he's in a jungle with lions. Just when he's got his way around that, he's on, or oh, take a drink, a railroad track. The next minute he's on a rock in the ocean. I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but that is that sequence. It's Not really so needed for the narrative, but it is so perfect because it's him showing like us, the audience, not the audience necessarily in the cinema that is watching this, but it's showing us the possibilities of cinema. This is still a very young medium, only a few years old. And he's saying, "I can do anything. I can make you watch all this stuff, and you can believe it. And I can change from this to this, and it's all believable, and it's all through the magic of lighting and camera and editing." I mean, look, I know that that expression, "the magic of cinema," is hackneyed and cliched, but at that time, it wasn't yet. Look, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen, apart from was it Journey to the Moon, Rocket to the Moon, haven't seen anything of Georges Melier. i I'm sure he was going for a similar sort of thing, but this is Buster's brief moment to show explicitly to his audience. Wow, isn't cinema great? Look what we can do. And then we go into the rest of the story proper. And one point I wanted to make, coming back to what you were saying before, Mike, about the Buster characters always being put upon rather than him being the guy who's in charge of the situation, and in his dream sequence when he is playing the world-renowned Sherlock Jr., he's the one who's actually in charge. He comes in, he inspects all the people in this household to find out who's gone and stolen the jewellery, and he's looking at them in a very Larry David, Kirby enthusiasm-like way. And then these the two villains of the piece, the butler and I can't remember the role of the other fellow, the, the Ward Crane was it Ward Crane character? He, they, they're trying to connive all these evil ways to, to dispatch with him, but he's one step ahead of them at every point. And so that's possibly the one moment, certainly in all the films that I've watched where he's not the one being put upon, he's the one in charge. And I just sort of found that that was a, a nice, refreshing change of pace
0: that little sequence at first where he's in different locations, any other filmmaker wouldn't have included that. I think they would have gone into like, okay, now he's dreaming and he's Sherlock Jr. But that little touch, that little sequence, it's just kind of further hammers home. Like he's in the dream state. Cause I mean, most dreams make no sense. Whatever you can remember of your dreams. Once you wake up, you're like, what, what did I eat? Like, where did that come from? This yes, And then like the whole Sherlock Jr. Sequence, there are scenes in this that, you will rewind. and by you, I mean me because I rewound them several times because they were so good. Like there's a gag where I, it, it, this it's hard to describe, but basically like his partner is dressed up like this old woman with a box of goods and she and he's running from the bad guys and he jumps in the box. And if you pause it, like, it's clearly like a quick cut, but it's done so seamlessly. It's like a magic trick. Because then she walks away and they're like, where did he go? And it's so beautifully done. And the fact that you brought up George Millais... Is perfect, because he was a magician, like literally a magician, and then he applied that to film. And that's, that's what Keaton, I mean, he does that in kind of all of his films, but Sherlock Jr. I think is the most prominent, because like, there's another scene where he jumps out of a window, and there's sort of like this round box that he breaks through, and it all of a sudden puts different clothes on him. And that is done so I mean, seamlessly, like I rewound, that's one of the ones, that's another one I rewound several times because I was just like, my jaw was open. I was like, holy cow, like, this is so good and so inventive. Like, who would have thought about that, uh, of doing that? And um, it's so cute, like his Sherlock Jr. character is just so kind of just like this adorable sort of, it's just kind of almost like when you're a little kid and you're pretending to be, you know, a, a super spy, like it has that kind of energy.
1: He was a James Bond of his day. Right.
0: And not that he's childish, but it, it has that sort of like childlike sort of fantasy element um, that I think is just really appealing and just really sweet.
2: One thing I really like about that sequence of him with all the cutting where he is in all those different environments is that you can still see the proscenium of the theater that we are still in that audience of the people that are in the audience watching him on screen. It isn't until that sequence is over that the camera pushes in and then we go inside of the movie because otherwise we are there watching that movie with with the cinema audience. And then we are taken into the movie proper where he is this Sherlock Jr. character. And I have to tell you, it's interesting. I've been watching for Chris Ashu's podcast, The Culture Cast. We've been doing a bunch of pre-code films, and we just watched one that Joseph Shank produced. And Joseph Shank was the producer on all these Keaton films. And the whole gag of the pool ball being a bomb is in this movie, Blood Money, from 1933. And it's so funny to see this gag beforehand and they paid it off so much better in Sherlock Jr. than they do in blood money. I did like blood money a lot, but this whole idea of you're 100% correct. This is when it literally he goes from being Daffy duck to Bugs Bunny. He becomes that bulletproof person inside of this fantasy. This is the sequence. This is Yosemite Sam putting a bomb under that key in the piano and Bugs Bunny being able to play the and not have anything blow up. Meanwhile, the bad guy, you know, Yosemite Sam will come in and play the exact same thing and boom, you know, he's got piano keys for teeth after that, right? So, with this, the he manages to shoot this entire pool game without hitting this 13 ball that has a bomb inside of it. And the bad guys are all, you know, they're standing outside of the room just waiting, you know, I'm surprised they didn't have their fingers in their ears kind of thing, waiting for the explosion that never happens. And they they just keep doing that over and over. It's like, they set them up. He avoids it. They set him up again. He avoids it. And sometimes to the point where, (laughs) where the, the butler puts poison inside of a drink. Of course, Buster takes the quote unquote wrong drink. The butler's trying to save the other guy from drinking it. At one point, he goes to take a sip of the drink after he avoids like, you know, almost near death and then realizes, Oh shit, I poisoned this and then has to spit it back out. just over and over again, just, and, and the sequence isn't that long, but it, it just, it's, you know, cause this is the, the middle of the movie where, the crime is being solved. We've already had the crime on the outside, this whole thing with the watch, like you're saying. And now this is basically, it really doesn't add anything to the film, but it makes the movie. This is the movie, the movie within the movie. I love this whole thing of now, yes, he is that Bugs Bunny character. He is able to be suave and all this. And he manages, oh God, again, we have like an incredible car chase. And I love, like this is where... Blood money didn't pay off. They didn't use the bomb pool ball in that, but with this, he remembers he's got a bomb on him. Is able to thwart the bad guys with their own pool
1: ball. I like the fact that the very closing sequence of the film is where his uh, his girlfriend comes back and says, "Hey, listen, we've gone and proven that that other fellow was the one who stole the watch. You're in the clear. It's all good." And so because of this dream and possibly he – or because of his dream, he knows that it took place within the sphere of a movie. So he looks to the screen to see what do the people in the movie do. Oh, he strokes her hair. Oh, he gives her a kiss on the cheek. And he does the same thing. So that gag is probably all set up. That last little very sweet sort of gag is set up through the whole existence of that 20, 30-minute sequence of him being sherlock and you know it might be a very elaborate setup for you know what's effectively a nice but slight gag but i think it's all the better for it Uh, yeah that that 20 30 minute sequence is absolute perfection
0: on top of that i read that um because i mean not only obviously would buster do his own stunts but he would do stunts of the other actors and apparently like when he's on like the you know sherlock juniors on the handlebars of like the sort of motorcycle bike and it's his partner dressed up as a cop and his partner falls off of it apparently that was buster doing that bump it's like holy okay okay calm down i'm gonna pray that he was maybe like a bad cook or something it doesn't seem, <laughs> it doesn't seem fair for one human to be like so exceptional at so many things right
2: <laughs> that whole thing of him on the handlebars of the bike he doesn't realize that his partner is behind him so it's just this this whole thing of him zooming through traffic and the way that he'll kind of like give dirty looks like he doesn't fully look over his shoulder but it's just like hey watch it you know (laughs) partner (laughs) you know like what are you doing like we're zooming through traffic and yeah you can tell some of this might have been sped up a little but still it's just it's all of these near misses with cars and all this and it's just like how is he doing this, you know, just careening through traffic like this. There's one point when he's on a bridge and he's going across a bridge on the handlebars of this bike. And there are two trucks and there's part of the bridge is missing. And these two trucks pass each other beneath the bridge, just at the right time for the bike to drive across the two of them. It is just Amazing. There's another part where he is on a platform and he's going across and the platform starts to collapse. And it collapses just so that it touches the next part of the road that he can continue on with no interruptions. And he's just like, how in the hell are you doing this? This is fucking incredible.
1: That gag that you mentioned or that stunt that you mentioned with the two trucks being set up. It was all very natural. It all took place in very quick time. I mean, I can imagine in a lot of other films where that sort of action is the thing. You get the music build up. You get the shots build up to say, right, we're going to show you something really amazing. Here, it's oh, yeah, just another stunt, just another part of the story. It's all serving the story. There's no big deal made of it. We can still be here and talking about it. But what really impresses me is that it's just – Another stunt in a million stunts, and it's all very natural, all part of the story.
2: There's one part when he gets back to the house. I think he's still Sherlock Jr. at this point, and he gets back to the house of uh, the girl and the baddie and all this, and he flies through a wall and kicks the butler. And talk about Jackie Chan. I mean, it is just amazing that he flies through this house to kick this guy. It was just like, oh, my God, this is martial arts way before (laughs) martial arts were a thing in the U.S. It was just wonderful to see. And you're right about those stunts. I mean, we would get shots of the trucks. We would get shots of the guys who are driving the trucks, all this stuff. Instead to the point from earlier, as far as the way he frames these things, we are in an extreme long shot seeing this stuff happen, seeing these trucks, not really realizing why they're there, just realizing, oh my God, look at that bridge. The bridge is out. And then next thing you know, you start to see a truck move. You start to see another truck move. And yeah, it's just so nonchalant about we're just going to do this and we're not going to yeah, it's not that weird uh, moment in um the man with the golden gun where Roger Moore corkscrews the car and you have to like slow it down and then actually play like a corkscrew noise with it, which is just one of the most embarrassing moments
1: from those James Bond films. I think the issue, though, with the truck setup coming back to Sherlock Jr. is he's playing everything for laughs. It's as much as the exhilaration from seeing these things. It's always about the humor. And if you go and set it up, as you described there with the James Bond film or any other action film, they're doing it because the stunt is the thing. Here, the joke is the thing.
2: So from what I read in one of the biographies, he was doing two – major films a year. So two features which at this point were, what, like 60 minutes, but still pretty impressive that we're doing all this stuff especially when it is so involved in order to have these things, these Incredible set pieces, incredible stunts, all this stuff, and that he's able to turn out one in the springtime and one in the fall. He gets a couple weeks either side of that for vacation, and he's right back to work. And he was a little bit of a workaholic. Apparently, he wasn't happy with Seven Chances, which was a stage play that somebody close to him bought and brought to him. And I think Shank was just like, yeah, that's going to be the next film. Keaton managed to do wonders with it, and this is another one where stunts galore, but really, it takes a while before we get to the stunts. There are a couple little things I talked earlier about, him jumping over a wall. There's a great great moment where he plays uh, some sort of businessman in here, and his business is going down the tank. And the central thing of it is that he's been named in his uncle's will of getting... Uh, $7 million if he marries someone by 7pm on the uh, day of his 27th birthday. So of course he finds out about this at noon on his 27th birthday. <laughs> There's a moment where he leaves the business and he's going over to his sweet, sweetheart's place. He jumps in his car And then there's a dissolve. The whole thing dissolves. And so the car's in the exact same place and it's in front of his girlfriend's house. And then he goes inside and asks her to marry him. She misunderstands a little bit. He's dejected. He comes back, gets in the car. There's another dissolve and the car's back in front of (laughs) the business. And it's just like, this is such a strange thing. We're talking about how surreal some of it is. This is completely surreal. The car never moves, but it manages to change locations and just stays the exact same space on the screen. It was just gorgeous that he was able to do that.
0: There's this whole, like, great sort of sequence where he's at, like, the country club. Because the whole thing is, like, his, you know, the firm he's a part of are they're, – they're about to go really big in the weeds financially, and so his partner is really like, okay, we got to get you married. And there's this amazing lawyer. I love this lawyer character. I had to look up this actor because he – was phenomenal you want to talk about a mug the guy's got the best mug best face snitz edwards who who was from austria great what a great character actor but they they basically joined forces trying to get him married and they have like a whole list of women and it's it's hilarious because poor poor buster gets rejected one girl after another one girl literally the first girl laughs at him so loudly that other girls are laughing. They're pointing at him. Finally, the one girl you think is going to go, they her mother comes up and yanks her fur coat off of her and hands her like a raggedy Ann doll. And all the girl, like the other girls, are like the grown women are. They start laughing at him. One of them's even making like a little baby rocking thing. Like, yeah, you cradle robber. Like, <laughs> it's, I love this film. Um, I do think this is one we probably want to give. You know, anybody listening, if you haven't seen it, a little bit of a warning: there is there is a minor character that's an actor in blackface.
1: There's a couple of moments there, so we get the where where he's looking around to see who he's going to marry. There's actually, I think, two characters in blackface. But there's there's I think a policeman who's stopping traffic, and there's another moment where it's once again as part of the comedy of the day. So we you take that into context, but. Once he's left the country club and he starts following women around to say, hey, will you marry me? He sits down next to a woman on a on a bench and starts to talk to her. Then she picks up the newspaper and she's reading a newspaper in Yiddish. So I think, oh, she's Jewish. I can't marry her. Then he follows a woman and see that she's African-American or rather a white woman in blackface. Um, so, oh, I can't marry her. That was the one as well with the – sequence where he, he goes goes behind what you were talking about, Mike, with uh, the female impersonator. He can't can't do that either. So there's gags against – there's the stereotypes of the day, and there's actually like a really big one in the a film that we're not officially discussing, but the cameraman that I just watched a couple of days ago. Uh, I imagine a lot of the uh, uh, Chinese community, Los Angeles, or anywhere it was watched would have taken issue with.
2: Yeah, it was really bad because, um, the one major blackface character in here is, um, the hired hand that, uh, his, his girl, Ruth Dwyer, she, uh, at one point, and this is, this might be a little tough for 20th, uh, 21st century audiences to figure out, which is he gets ejected by Ruth Dwyer. He goes back to the office. And she talks with her mother, and her mother's just like, hey, you know, he didn't mean this. Give him another chance. So she calls up to the office. The secretary puts the call through, and he has accidentally moved the phone. So the phone receiver's off the hook. So if it were us, we would be getting a busy signal. But for... Technology at the time, what happens is when the secretary puts the call through, it goes right to the phone so she can hear what he's saying on the other end of the phone, but he doesn't know that she's listening in. So it's a really nice sequence as far as that goes. But yeah, once she figures out that he is sincere and that she really does want to marry him, she needs to get a message to him immediately. So she goes to the hired hand of the house jules cowles who is a white guy in blackface and unfortunately he is very slow let's say um he does survive you know does manage to get the message to buster which is good but it takes a long time luckily it's not to step and fetch it but it is very like wow this guy's kind of quote unquote shiftless this is going to take a while before buster gets the message
0: it, it was awkward, and it's weird because there are actors in this film that are African American that aren't people that aren't white people in blackface. So it's just kind of like, man, just give this role to, to like a you know to a black actor, and also don't make him like. That's the other thing is like this actor. Yeah, like some of the faces he would make, it just was so, yeah, and, and that's the thing, I know people, I mean, context is there, but it's still, it's racist, it was racist then, it's racist now, and if it makes you uncomfortable, it should, it should make anybody uncomfortable, if you're comfortable seeing racist shit, you got issues, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't now nobody's gonna cancel Buster Keaton, they shouldn't. It's not that. The film is still very enjoyable in a lot of ways, but it is kind of like, to me, it kind of weakens it a little bit because everything else in the film is so good, and it's such a great, kind of light comedy, and then you just have this sort of like, ugliness, and it's like, oh god, and What's interesting though is the gag with the girl reading the paper in Hebrew. I maybe this is me being dense. I just thought it was because like, oh, she can't speak English, and that's why he didn't <laughs> want to be there.
1: I have my radar up all the time, so you know,
2: I picked it up as an anti-Jewish thing as well. I was just like, oh yeah, no, can't marry this woman. Oh God, I'm so naive. You're right about Snitz Edwards, by the way. He has an amazing face. He would end up working with uh, Keaton quite a few times. I know for sure he was in college and uh, the Badling butler with him. Must have gotten along pretty well with that because Keaton – did like to work with the same people, especially when it came to people behind the camera. He would have the same gag writers quite often and just work with the same camera people and that kind of stuff. He had like his trusted crew. So I think a lot of his, um, character actors that he would work with would, would stick around with him as well. And yeah, there's that moment when they're at that country club and, the partner, T Roy Barnes, goes over to one of the women is just describing his friend. My friend wants to get married. And when she looks over, Snitz is there rather than Buster, and she's just like, mm-mm, no thank you.
0: I <laughs> <laughs> felt so bad for Snitz. And especially like at the end when he finally, you know, spoiler alert, Buster finally gets his girl. Love perseveres. Cause that's the other sweet thing, is at one point, like early on, he actually tells them like you know the money's not worth it to me if I can't have her, and but then it's kind of encouraged because the money can help save the, the company and the business. But um, but like he tries to kiss his bride and like her father. You know, it's like her grandma comes in and kisses her, and then his partner and the preacher, and then Snits like wipes his mouth on his sleeve. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and Buster's like ah, okay, buddy, you need to. <laughs> There there are some cute dogs in some Buster Keaton movies. You have the dog in our our hospitality that follows the train, that dog. You have, you know, this dog. That might be it, actually, but that's – listen.
1: By the time he gets to the cameraman, they invoke the monkey, which brought back some terrible memories of died laughing. The film Seven Chances,
2: like, we've kind of talked around what Seven Chances is famous for, but Seven Chances, at the heart of it, again, we have a chase – and this chase is one of those where it's kind of the meat of the film, and there's two major parts to it. That, to to Keaton, is what saved the film. The Especially there's a um, an avalanche that happens where he, apparently from the story I read, and again, this could all be apocryphal, he was doing a stunt and some rocks were falling, and he was just like, you know what, we're going to come back here tomorrow and bring a whole bunch of fake rocks. And so they made all of these... Big, big rocks. So they probably still would have hurt like hell had he gotten hit by these things. And I'm sure there are probably outtakes where he did get just smashed in the face with some of these giant rocks. But... It is just incredible him on this hill with all of these rocks and he uses them in several different ways. There's part of it. He's running away from the rocks. And then once he finds that the rocks are actually helpful for part of his cause, he then starts avoiding these rocks and it's almost like a living video game watching him jump around these rocks and over them. And just the way that he's dodging this stuff, it's incredible. There's, This whole thing with him needing to get married, I think it's his partner puts an ad in the newspaper and says, hey, be at this church at this time to get married and get all this money. So all of these women and it had to have been what, guys, hundreds, hundreds of women, because it just looked
1: like it went on forever with how many women there were. He'd set that sort of thing up in one of his short films, Cops, because there's that great sequence for – well, I think it's maybe like half the 20-minute film where he's riding his uh, cart down the street and then there's this big chasing with all these cops and there's even like a couple of long shots where he's walking down the street, there's hundreds of cops behind him and he's completely unaware of them. And the same thing happens here with all the brides who are following him down the street and he's walking up front. The um, So that triangle – him at the pinnacle and them in the background going to the background that shape and i just i mean i'm not exactly calling it maybe a recycle of what happened in cops but i do like to think that he sort of thought i can do this better i can do this on a grander scale uh, than i did in that film and i just love that he took what he'd done in previous films and said right let's see how i can improve on that make that funnier make that more grand in scope
2: I definitely think that he recycled jokes, especially when they worked. Yeah, we'll talk about this when we get to Steamboat Bill Jr., but the whole idea of the facade falling around him, which then um we've seen in a lot of other films, like, that I saw a little bit of in uh one week. That I saw a little bit of in other films, where it's just like, okay, yeah, he's kind of doing this thing. It's not as spectacular as the one in Steamboat Bill Jr., but yeah, he definitely will recycle gags. How many train jokes can we get? But he definitely shoves them in there kind of thing. But the thing is, I don't mind. And like you said, he's kind of recasting it because yeah, I saw cops and that was just amazing to see all those cops running after him. And this, I love him running from the brides and especially when his partner is coming up to him and has to run next to him and, <laughs> and like trying to get a, a message to his partner to, to make sure that, that he'll be at the house by seven o'clock so that they can get married. And yeah, these brides are just. Everywhere, And every time he turns a corner, you think that he's going to get away. But nope, there's a whole other group of brides that are there that are going to attack him. And it just is fantastic to see this just endless chase and all of the creative ways that he can get around things. But he still, again, is like at the whim of all of these brides that are just so on him and and need his money. <laughs> so they are just rabid.
1: That documentary that you recommended that we watched that had been narrated by Peter Bogdanovich, watching all these films, and particularly the dream sequence of Sherlock Jr. and that chase sequence in Seven Chances, it made me think, oh, Bogdanovich, it makes complete sense that he'd be directing this. He would have, I mean, obviously he's a walking encyclopedia of cinema anyway, but the whole screwball set up at the end of what's up doc that chase sequence there's no way he wasn't thinking of buster keaton i think he'd be watching he'd be thinking of that rather than a film like bullet or something like that it was it was the comedic possibilities of the chase rather than the action possibilities of the chase
2: so let's talk about the general it's not a lot of films that are close to perfect but this one is very, very close to perfect. It's a little questionable these days that Buster is fighting for the South. But if we can look past that, I think we find a pretty good film here. This whole thing of he wants to join the army, wants to be part of the Confederate army, and his girl here, her father and her brother they immediately run out to join up with the army, and uh, once they declare war on the North, and I love that uh, he doesn't immediately go running out, but then he wants to be front of the line, and just all of the ways that he goes about becoming front of the line, and that it gets refused, and all the ways that he tries to get back into the line, and try to pass himself off as something that he's not, so that he can get, to be part of the army again this is one of those kind of mistaken identity kind of things where he is being refused entrance into the army because he's an engineer and he's more valuable as an engineer than as part of the army and i love this whole thing of how how much he loves his girl yes but he loves his train i think even more because of that amazing picture that he gives to her (laughs) (laughs) of him in front of his engine oh i love it
1: Just like in one week where I said that the house was a character, obviously there's this great setup shot. And once again, what I'm talking about framing, there's this beautiful moment where she confronts him to say, Why didn't you enlist in the army? We get him on the left, her on the right, the train behind him. So it's his two great loves. The train's not going to let him down, but the human love of his life is about to let him dance and don't you come anywhere near me until you've got that uniform on. And I, I just sort of found this interesting because as someone who wasn't born, didn't grow up in America, and I, I I hadn't watched the Ken Burns series. I didn't know a hell of a lot about the Civil War and was always sort of curious, you know, what's a Confederacy about? I had my guesses. And I read something that said that this was actually based on a true story there was a great train theft and uh I think the the northern soldiers who captured the train were taken back and executed in the south. But the person who wrote the his, the history book back at the time about this incident had written about it from the northerners' perspective. And Buster Keaton had said that he found this is and this is something that just threw me. He said he'd watched D. W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. And he was quoted as saying something like, the Northerners can be painted as villains, but the Southerners never can. And he was inspired by Birth of a Nation. Now I haven't seen it, but I've read about it and I've heard about it. And it just sort of seems bizarre to me. And apparently, like you know, he he didn't grow up as a child of Southerners. It's not even like he had that behind him. So it was just something that I found really interesting that he would choose to paint this from the perspective of the South. And when we get to the end of the film, I mean, it's not the end of the Civil War, but the South effectively wins. they are proven to be the good guys and the Northerners are always – or the the Yankees are proven to be the bad guys. Now, I'm I'm sorry. I'm coming from a place of of ignorance, not having grown up with that, uh, having read those history books. But, yeah, that that just seemed really quite interesting to me.
0: First of all, I I hate to correct – you guys, but it's it's actually referred to as the war against northern aggression.
2: From what I understand is that the entire war was just about states' rights.
0: Oh yeah, it wasn't a lot of people want to say it's about slavery, but you know. Yeah.
1: Well that's that was the impression that I'd had. I thought it was about no, slavery. It's,
0: it's totally about slavery, Morris. We're being smart asses. <laughs> oh oh
1: sc- <laughs> excuse, excuse me, you can cut that bit out or not.
0: Oh no, it's sh- it's it shall stay his girl in this film got on my nerves she is my if i on my top five list of buster keaton ladies she's number five she's not way down on that list oh my god just the whole honey he weighs 110 pounds and he's an engineer she just buys these shady guys ended up being like northern spies being like oh he wasn't even in line he didn't even try she just bought she just believed it because she's I don't know. I just, Annabelle Lee, please. Well, there's only one Annabelle Lee for me and that's also problematic, but that's another episode.
1: There's one conceit though, with that story, that initial premise that, I mean, if you didn't have that conceit there, there'd be no film or it'd be a completely different film. But all the drama could have been saved if the recruitment office had gone and told Buster Keaton's character, listen, you're really important to us as an engineer. But he goes away and he, his, uh, his machismo has been deflated. He thinks, oh, I'm no good. They think I'm too short. I'm not strong enough. I'm not this. I'm not that enough. And if they'd only gone and told him, then all the problems would be solved. But, of course, there would be no film.
2: I love that when there's a little guy who gets the draft slip, the sign-up slip, and Buster's just like... Wait a second, and he just like starts feeling the guy's legs, starts feeling his arms. Just all of that. Like you know, hey, I'm I'm as just as tall as you are, I'm just as built as you are. That was so good. I, I love that part. I've mentioned chases. Chases are really so much a part of these films, and this film it's it's really smart. It I mean this is Mad Max Fury Road a century beforehand. This is Buster chasing after His engine, which has been stolen, which is going to the north, by stolen by all of these Yankee soldiers, and he's chasing them. And you get to the end of it. He saves the girl, gets back in a train, and then he's chased back. And it's basically, that's your halves of the movie. Like, one half is him going, the other half is him coming back. But with him coming back, there's also the war sequence. But the chase of him... Going forward, going north, uh, chasing the general, all of the ways that the Yankees are trying to thwart him, this chase has created some of the most memorable images for me. The whole thing, he at one point hooks a cannon up to the back of his train car that he's taking, and he's shooting at these guys. and the first time that the cannon shoots it shoots from the back of the train to the front of the train (laughs) (laughs) and and you get this again this long shot of the entire train in frame and you get to see the cannonball fire from the back all the way to the front of the train the thing about this movie is that Buster Keaton is a fucking madman. The way he moves around on this train, he can never just walk. He's always jumping, hopping, crawling. Just the way he moves back and forth between the back of the train and the front of the train, where he's chopping up the wood and where he's throwing it in the engine, where he's standing on top of the very front of the train, where he's down on the cowcatcher. I mean, that's another one of these amazing images, which is the... Yankee soldiers have thrown all these um logs or, or big wooden stakes or whatever onto the track. And he gets down on the cow catcher and picks up one of these and then, The way he tosses it at another one and basically plays tiddlywinks with these huge logs and bounces the other one off of the track so that the train can carry on with completely unencumbered. I mean, the guy could have died from doing that, but instead he's just like, "Hmm, okay, and toss and boom and done. It was Just remarkable. Cool as a cucumber
0: the whole time. It's it's absolutely mind-boggling. There's one scene where he eventually gets to rescue this simpy girl. I'm sorry, I'm not a fan of her. I'm not a fan (laughs) of her, but he's helping her get in there, and he like jumps up and crawls through the window of the like a monkey. I, I I was just like, my God, if I tried doing that, I would be... Ca- you you guys would have to call me Concussion Jones. I, it would be... It would not be pretty. It would not be a good thing. And yeah, it's just his, his fluidity of movement. It's just... It, it's always inspiring. It doesn't matter if you watch this film 10
2: times. You're still just going to be like, holy cats. When they're on their way down south, and it's the engine the fuel car, and then a car behind them. And he jumps from the car behind them midway onto the fuel car, onto where the the wood would be for him to chop up. And it's just incredible. He's got to jump at least 20 feet on a moving train from the back of one thing onto a lower car. And you're just like, you could have crawled. You could have gotten down and moved across, but no, he knows that to do that jump, it's going to make it more exciting.
1: So let me ask you this: Do you think the film is actually a comedy, or it's an adventure with just a few comedic bits in it? Because I mean, I'm sort of thinking that some of the comedy bits, where he falls flat on his ass as he's trying to shoot or something like that, were maybe superfluous. And if he just had the faith to sort of say, "Right, I'm going to just make this a action out an actual adventure," keep the comedic bits that work with the action, but any of the bits where he just sort of falls flat on his ass were maybe extraneous. Would you say that this works as a, just a straight out adventure thriller?
2: I could see that. Like I said, I, I was thinking of Mad Max Fury Road when I was watching this towards the end, when it becomes the battle, I guess some of the jokes didn't necessarily need to be there. And I think that's what really caused some problems when it came to the, this movie's appeal to, at the box office, one of the quotes was that there's nothing funny about death because, and I gotta say, it's a fucking hilarious sequence to me when he is, he's there and he's got this sword and the sword blade keeps flying off of the handle, right? This is, this would be a major foul on fortune fire. Just this would not pass. He, has the sword, and he's pointing at the soldier, and he's just like, hey, you need to fire over here. And you hear this noise, and the soldier just collapses. And then he starts talking to another one, and again, the soldier just collapses. It keeps getting shot. These soldiers keep getting shot by a Yankee sniper. And he goes to the third guy, and the third guy falls over. And this is cracking me up, but apparently some audiences or critics of the day did not find this funny. And this is like, you talked about how Bogdanovich must have seen this. I know for sure. Woody Allen must have seen this film because this is right out of you love, and love and Death. death. Yeah. Took so much of this, right? That he takes that sword and points someplace else, and the handle, f- the the blade flies off again, and that's what ends up killing the sniper. <laughs> <laughs> But apparently this whole idea of people being shot randomly like this and kind of showing the absurdities of war through this movie were just too much for people to handle at the
1: time. As for the train sequence bits, I kept on thinking, yeah, Robert Zemeckis is a fan of this. Back to the Future 3.
0: Now, it's funny, when the bridge collapses, was I the one that thought of the bridge of the River Kwai? I was thinking
2: that, I was thinking um The Good, The Bad, The oh, Ugly a little bit yes, as well. Yes,
0: yes, I imagine part of the reason why people, when this came out, had a hard time kind of finding the darker kind of elements funny in this is that... Think about it, The Civil War was a few decades away, but it wasn't even 100 years old. But on top of that, you had World War I as a very recent specter. And granted, that war was a lot more bloody and traumatic for Europe than it was for America, but there were still American soldiers coming back with extreme PTSD, disfigured like it was i mean all war is nasty that's obviously an understatement but world war one definitely seemed to have a very very debilitating effect on people on the psyche of of people that had to serve it so time and distance can help us find certain things funnier if we're if we have a distance from it if you're somebody who's still going through it yeah it's not going to be as funny to you and that's that's understandable i thought it was funny though
2: too mike and there's also that question of how much this cost. And that could have been poison as well. I mean, I'm sure we all remember, like I went to Waterworld as one of them, but I'm sure we all remember movies that were just costing a lot of money when they were being made, or you're hearing about troubled productions. This was semi troubled. Though a lot of his films are co-directed, I read several times where he would basically force the co-director out and then reshoot everything that the co-director had done. That happened with Ann Arbuckle co-direction that he worked on. It happened with another one. I can't remember if it was this one or Steamboat Bill Jr., but he would just redo things. So the redoing of stuff, the way that he would improvise, come up with new ideas— the $48,000 that they spent for this train to collapse on this bridge. There were fires that were going on with this because of the way that the train was, and uh, they would accidentally catch stuff on fire on either side of the tracks. Just a bunch of things were going on with this movie. I think one of the People on set had their foot crushed by a train. Sorry to laugh, but just all of these awful things. So they had to settle lawsuits and all this. So the the movie ended up costing seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. And in comparison, you look at some of his best earning films, and they would make five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars. And this one costing $750,000, you're already taking a big chance that it's not going to make back its money. And then when it gets panned by critics and audiences, for sure it's not going to make, make back its money. So yeah, this was a major black mark on, uh, his career at the time, even though to our point later on, you know, here we are talking about it almost a hundred years later and it's still a fantastic film. It took a long time before this was recognized as being one of his greats.
0: Which that probably gives it the edge over because a, a film like, say, Waterworld. Because, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll be wrong, but...
2: In a hundred years, will we still be talking about yeah, Waterworld? Are people
0: going to be doing sort of like the, you know, the 20, 40 greatest films of all time books? And it's like, Water, Waterworld, number eight, Yeah, you know?
2: The Mariner is really all of us, isn't he?
0: You mentioned that about Keaton. And I had read about The Navigator, where that was an instance where he ended up kind of reshooting... Some of the scenes, cause the, Aaron, I cannot remember the actual director's name, but what's funny is that gag in the navigator with the, where there's this, <laughs> I love this gag so much where the girl can't sleep in her little room cause there's this painting of this really grumpy, surly looking man, and it's just his head? And she, she finally throws it over the boat. That apparently, that painting is of that director that, Keaton, that Keaton, like basically all but cocked off the set. <laughs> like it's like, okay, I already love you, Buster. Okay, you don't need to do anything else. <laughs> that that gag. Like, oh, is what a what a guy.
2: To your point from earlier, uh, Morris, Steamboat Bill Jr. was the last. Buster Keaton Productions, Buster Keaton film. After that, he moved on to other studios and things just changed. So that's why we kind of are going to end with talking about this one. I know that I saw Steamboat Bill Jr. when I was younger, but I did not remember that much and I've seen parts of it, but my God, this movie comes together in a really good way. And I love this whole thing. Of uh so it 's Ernest Torrance in here it plays his father, and I had to look up just to see how tall this guy is he 's six foot four, so compared to Buster Keaton, he looks like a mountain so in this one it's interesting because it's not necessarily buster's fight, but he comes back home after being away at college, and he comes back home and he comes back in this he would call it a sap character because he's played the sap several times. And it's very like a foppish character, very uh, erudite. He's been to the city. He's getting a college education. He comes back to his working class father and his father cannot stand him. His father can't stand the clothes that he's wearing. He definitely can't stand that Buster's wearing a beret. And it becomes – uh his father is – Running a steamboat, but there's another company in town that uh, also has a steamboat, and theirs is really nice and plush, and it's owned by J.J. Uh, king, and he's the king of the town. All of these factories are king factories that are in town. Steamboat Bill Sr. runs this Stonewall Jackson ship. And it's just kind of rinky dink. It's just him and his mate and that's it. And eventually Buster gets involved and really becomes kind of a Romeo and Juliet story because Buster, you know, is, is Steamboat Bill Jr. And the girl that he liked in college ends up Coming back as well, and that is J.J. J. King's daughter, and they get romantically involved, and eventually have to bring these two sides together, which is ironic because I think that another Keaton film that a lot of people like, he it's kind of a Hatfield McCoy type story, and it's very similar in that way too, with um,
1: you know the the Romeo and Juliet overtones. Out of all the films, this is the one that seemed to me to have external themes, well, it was the one that seemed to have themes that you could read into. I mean, as you say, this is a Romeo and Juliet type of film, but more about father and son discovering each other. Uh, it's about big business pushing out the small independent guy. It's about our perception of what is macho or what is what makes a real man and what doesn't. But I like that this is a film, and this might be an early example once again, it's that type of film where our perception – or rather, the characters' perceptions of each other at the start of the film is very different to what it is at the end of the film. They've gone on – I hate that fucking word. They've gone on a journey. But they've, they're have they not who they were at the start of the film, or at least their perceptions of each other are different. So, by the start of the film, the Buster Keaton character – well, Steamboat Bill Jr. is – as you say, this incompetent fop sort of a guy and he can't do anything and, well, at least nothing that his father that considers that's important, but by the end, he's saved the day using maybe some belief in himself and some skills that he's learnt along the way being on the ship. You know, the first time he's on the ship, everything he touches, making the boat move when it shouldn't, it's bad. He falls over, he falls on his ass. Uh, there's this fantastic acrobatic sequence it's not a big one but between where he's being pushed around by his father on the boat onto the dock that took some really strong acrobatic skills which i put back to his vaudeville days yeah i just like that the overall arc of this film i'd compare it to other films like the film that we spoke about the first time i was with you mike uh, was uh, sunstruck the family friendly version of uh, wake and Fright. Uh, it's like Groundhog Day. It's like A uh, Even One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest. You know, the, the with Chief Bromden. I love a story where the, the character is one type at the end, at the beginning, and then he finds I don't know whatever, finds his courage, or he changes in some way by the end of the film. And I put, I, I don't know if this is the first, but it's certainly an early example of that type of film. I, I'm a sucker for that sort of story
2: he kind of comes into his own in to me one of the funniest sequences which is when his father ends up in jail and buster has baked bread and put all of these (laughs) files and saws and all this kind of stuff into the bread and his father just doesn't like him at this point you know it's he's such a disappointment and his father's now in jail and he really shouldn't be and so when Buster comes in, he's just like, I don't want to see this guy. Get him out of here. And uh Buster's like, I brought him this bread. Yeah, you know, I want to give him this bread. <laughs> and his father's just like, no, 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 get out of here. And there's all of this stuff that goes on. And then eventually Buster takes the bread and he rips an end off. And he just is like, look at inside. And this father finally fucking figures out what's going on. Oh, my God. And then at one point, all the tools just fall out. And this is where you get – I talked about how there's not a lot of title cards, but you get a great title card that just says something like,
1: oh, the dough must have fallen into the toolbox. That is a fantastic – and that is the sequence where the father turns around. He, he sees, oh, my gosh, you're, you're here to get me. Oh, you've got a plan. Oh, okay. And he starts to show a little bit of begrudging respect for his son. But even if you sort of don't look – at that overall theme through the film, if you were to just show some of that five minute sequence, it's hysterically funny. And I don't care how many films you've seen about the file being in the cake. This is the original and the best. That was just that was hysterical. I just want to come back originally to like the early part of the film with the father's perception of his character. He doesn't appreciate him. You know, he said, well, you're not a real man. He doesn't like the beret that he's wearing. He doesn't like the fact that he has a ukulele. He doesn't even know what it is. And there's this great sequence where, you know, the the father is talking with his first mate, these two big, tough sailing guys and in the foreground you know buster has no idea that that they're watching him and he's playing the ukulele trying to get this crying baby in the pram to smile and be happy he's just dancing around it's really really sweet and we're we're never really with the father we're thinking, what's your problem you know he's a really lovely guy don't worry he'll learn he'll 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 help you on the ship but uh, yeah, it's just yeah, a beautiful moment. I really like that, and oh, I love that gag. Just blink in your mo- blink in your miss moment, where the father's trying to get him a new set of clothes more appropriate for the ship, and you going to a into a millinery. He's giving going through lots of different hats. No, nah, don't like that one. No, nah, don't like that one. And the father keeps ripping him off. And then one of the hats that he puts on is Buster Keaton's traditional boater, pork pie type hat. And then Buster at that, but no, don't want to wear that. And it's just, I love that little self-referential meta moment in the film.
0: When you mentioned earlier about the Romeo and Juliet thing, that was the concept that came up in other Buster films. I think most obviously probably our hospitality, which was the only film he ever did with his then wife, Natalie Talmadge, who was part of the Talmadge dynasty. They're not really talked about that much nowadays, but back... In the 20s and uh, early teens, the the Talmadges were very, very famous actor sisters, especially Constance. Natalie reportedly wanted to be a writer. She did not even want to be an actress. But they had a stage mother who very much encouraged, and and we're probably going to encourage this, probably needs to have quotation marks around that, probably... I imagine some mental abuse, <laughs> probably you know, went into it of kind of forcing her daughters into into show business. But that's the only film they ever did together. And in fact, that was uh, Natalie's last film was Our Hospitality, and I, I definitely recommend it. It's got a cute dog. It's also got some good old southern <laughs> southern attitudes <laughs> that I don't recommend
2: people continuing in modern
0: times.
2: Is that also the one where they're in that funny little train? Speaking of trains.
0: Yes, the the rocket was um, based off a real creation. There's also a whole infamous sort of climactic sequence with him and like a ravine that goes into a waterfall. And that is some of the most harrowing Buster Keaton stunts I have ever seen. That is one. Holy crap. How are you alive? Well, he's not alive anymore. But how did you stay alive for so long? <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was one biography I read about Buster where the author was just talking about the Talmadge family almost too much, where it was just like, come on, I just want to know about Buster. Like, of course, the Talmadges were a major influence and yeah, they didn't really like him. It doesn't sound like and it sounds like Natalie spent money like water they had a couple of kids together, but they slept in separate beds for a long time. I think after the second kid, she was just like, that's it. We're not sleeping together anymore. So there was a lot of extramarital affairs that were going on that were pretty much known about. Yeah, it was just... Not a good scene for him at all, being married to Natalie, and um, got him involved in a lot of real estate stuff, and I don't think that he had a lot of money after they were coming out of the 1920s, which was another bad thing, and then eventually... They would divorce, and I—I I, luckily his last wife Virginia was supposed to be just like salt of the earth and just took care of him so well. But yeah, it doesn't sound like him and the Talmages um, had a lot of love lost.
0: And of course, obviously, mileage is going to vary. But one source I read, when the subject was broached to him about, you know, you two will be sleeping in separate bedrooms, it was the like the women, like plural. It wasn't just Natalie; it was like her mother. Like how awkward has I mean it's got to be bad enough having your spouse be like, you know what, I I'm I'm not touching you anymore. <laughs> you need to go to another room. But to have your mother, to have your mother-in-law say that. That's that's just poor buster. Like no, you know, again, the fact that he only ended up having a bit of a drinking problems a miracle. You know, the the man went through some things that would drive a, a lesser soul to much stronger uh vices in my opinion, but
2: why did I say his last wife was named Virginia? No idea. That's weird.
0: It's an old, it's an old fashioned name. No, yeah. I mean Virginia, Eleanor. It's a, the Eunice. It's all, it's all the same.
2: The thing I didn't realize when I was watching Steamboat Bill Jr. is I thought it was named after the Mickey Mouse cartoon rather than uh something else, but apparently it was already a an act, I guess, or it was a song. That's what it is. It was a, a song about race between two steamboats, I guess it was. But it's kind of ironic that Disney would name their first short Steamboat Willie, because really, and we've talked about why Buster kinda lost his steam, and I think one of the reasons it wasn't sound. Like we said, he had a good voice. He was able to to do witty repartee. He was not some sort of mushmouth person that had trouble once the sound era came in. I think part of it was him losing his independence. And then also, I think part of it might have been cartoons because there wasn't necessarily the need for the stuff that he was doing live action was then being done in cartoons. Though so I think some of his live action stuff was more exciting than a lot of cartoon stuff where you could do anything. Buster seemed to be able to do anything
1: my knowledge of when cartoons sort of became like a regularly ongoing thing with Disney Studios, uh, I don't know, because like he was still doing – this This film was 1928, wasn't it? And weren't they sort of like starting like early 30s or something? I mean, I know he was still making films with MGM and other studios after that, so maybe that was an issue then. But would he have lost his confidence at at about the time of this film, do you think, because of uh, animation?
2: I'm not sure if he would have lost his confidence at this point, but I think, you know, Steamboat Willie was the same year, was also 1928. That was the first time that we now had, because we had cartoons before that, but this was one of the first... Sound plus image cartoons that was out there. Like you said, this is the same year as, uh, the jazz singer is coming out, I believe, or that might have been October 27th as opposed to 28, but it's right around that same time. So it's not like sound put him out of business. I think it was more the lack of, uh, of freedom to do the crazy shit that he did. But then I also, I just want to say that I think cartoons might have also played into it a little bit.
0: That and also, by the time you had 30s and sound, by the mid 30s, you started having things like serials, too. And serials, most of the serials tended to be more just sort of like fantasy, fantastic action adventure, um, kind of comic book style plots, you know, things like Return of Shandu. And, uh, of course, I have to mention the one with Bill Lugosi, because that's Totally on brand for me. <laughs> but yeah, later on like Flash Gordon and, you know, Batman. It seemed like, yeah, you didn't see as many comedic shorts. I mean, they still existed, but there was more stuff, I think, like Our Gang, which is more just completely aimed towards children and not so much, you know, adults.
2: Well, and by the time 1930 rolls around, he's 35 years old. So I'm not sure if he can still take the Pratt Falls as much as he can, though watching some of the stuff that he would do on television, you could see him take those pratfalls and you could see him do these things. I mean, even watching something like the Railroader* in 65, he still had it. You know, it wasn't as wild. He was not throwing himself on the floor like he was, but he still has the chops and he's still able to do a lot of the things that he's able to do. But at some point you got to figure that, If there wasn't a bone that was already broken, he's going to break it by the time he starts, you know, getting into his 30s. Oh,
0: definitely. Well, and especially because, like, with the rotter, that was literally made, I think, like, four months before he died. And he's still just... Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, he's not doing the super crazy stuff, but he's still agile, and there's still a few things in there where, you know, I mean... Yeah, you know, if if a regular person in their thirties or twenties try to do them, you know it's going to turn into like the worst episode of Jackass pretty quickly. <laughs> 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 and uh, and he still got that spark. I mean, that's the thing. Because even seeing him pop up in, in stuff like one of my favorite movies ever, which is Beach Blanket Bingo, and I'm not saying that to be funny. I legit love that movie.
2: No, it's a. Oh great my god, film.
0: the best beach party movie ever, in my opinion. And also, it's got Timothy Carey. Uh, in it, which, you know, come on. And Paul Lynn. Like, come on. Come on. And a mermaid. You cannot go wrong with that movie. But, you know, to me, like, seeing him pop up, it's not... Because sometimes when you see older actors pop up and stuff, especially that's, you know, kind of more of a B-movie thing, it can be sad you would be like oh god the former glory moment but you never feel that way. you're just happy to see him You're just like hey that's buster keaton you know um actually i was talking to my mother earlier and she's started re-watching the old uh the original twilight zone and he pops up there
1: yes that's an excellent episode haven't seen that in years but i, I was so blown away when about four or five years ago i was going through all these old episodes and uh so saw- i mean he was playing something essentially in tribute to his early days, but yeah, absolutely blew me away. I didn't even know at that time that he continued acting to that point. I think the only thing I'd known about was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum from the sixties, but yeah, that was a complete surprise.
2: Okay guys, let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play an interview that Morris did with Gus McMillan of the band Bluegrassy knoll. And we'll be back with that right after this.
5: And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code OOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out AdamandEve.com today, select one item, and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at AdamandEve.com.
3: It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash Booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
1: I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. So, the first I heard about the Blue Grassy Knoll would have been maybe in the early 2000s, I think. You were doing scores for Buster Keaton films like Sherlock Jr. and Our Hospitality at places like the Valhalla in Melbourne and the Astor Theatre. I think it might have been One Week and The Boat and Sherlock Jr. I want to go back further than that. Do you recall specifically when you formed? Were you forming as a band to do music in general and then got diverted to do films? or was the idea always to be a band to accompany films?
6: No, we were a young, very newly formed band. We first got, I think, in fact, we've just passed our 25th anniversary of our first gig. It was a Friday the 13th of February 1996. We did our first gig and it was a bit of a dream band for me. It was kind of like a super group of these amazing Melbourne musicians who I admired and loved and had become good mates with. And so we were... Playing together, but it was an interesting band because we we went for this kind of, you know, pseudo joke name of the Bluegrassy knoll and we were kind of, we were irreverent, not really bluegrass, we were more playing bluegrass instruments but trying to play different styles and, you know, see what that'd sound like and it was a band of multi-instrumentalists and so... We'd been playing for a couple of months, I think, only, and I'd always had this idea of wanting to do a score to a silent film. And so I took it to the guys in a rehearsal one day and just said, ''Look, there's a Fringe Festival coming up. I've always had this idea of doing a silent film score. What do you reckon? Shall we give it a go?'' And they were all very open-minded to it So we were already playing as a band in pubs, you know And sort of starting to get a bit of a following as a pub band Around playing Melbourne pubs So we sort of started off this second sort of career as film score writers Now none of us were film students None of us had written a score before We didn't even know what film we were going to do. We just decided we were going to do a silent film. And my girlfriend at the time was a film student. And I said to her, silent film, what do you reckon? And she said, well, look, the funniest film I've seen all year, like, any film I've seen this year. The funniest one I saw was Our Hospitality by Buster Keaton. And we watched it in school, in, in university, in complete silence and it was still the funniest film that I've seen this year. So I thought, well, there's a good place to start. So we had a look at Our Hospitality and sure enough, it was a, just a killer film. And so we just sort of took this on as our project and it had just evolved from there, pretty much.
1: What were your early performances like? Were they for myth or did you put on your own shows how did that work
6: we were lucky actually we did it as a fringe show we landed a great venue we were in the Melbourne Town Hall and we actually opened on Buster Keaton's birthday which was fantastic I think it was his 101st birthday so we just missed the 100 year anniversary but we still made something of that and we just produced it ourselves pretty much and it is, while the film was still while the score was still being written I recorded a few grabs of it and edited it together to a bit of Film and sent it off to the Woodford Folk Festival saying, Would you be interested in this? Which was uh, that was on between Christmas and New Year that year. And they said, Yes. And so as that season was finishing, I got the reply saying yes, would like that. So suddenly it became a touring prospect, and then we sort of lined up gigs up and down the east coast of Australia, and it sort of just took off from there.
1: How does access to being able to screen these films work in the twenty first century? I mean, are they public domain? Did you have to pay some exorbitant rights to be able to do that?
6: Well, we were um, ignorance is bliss back in those days, and this is <laughs> pre well, very very early days of internet. Like these these days I think they've all just come into the public domain now but we started doing them without uh, assuming they were all in the public domain because they were old and, in fact, people, the advice that we'd been given was that they are in the public domain and we did them for about, uh, I suppose, 12, 18 months without worrying about any of that stuff. So we wrote Our Hospitality in the end of 96 and then in 97 the Melbourne Film Festival asked us if we would like to do another film. So that's when we did, I think... think we did cops for the comedy festival the following year and then we did uh sherlock jr for the 97 melbourne film festival and that's when we contacted because we thought wouldn't it be great to get a 35 mil print of this so we contacted who we believed were the rights holders and they sent us a fax back saying oh we're very interested in your project please inform us of everything you've done up until now and um what you're planning to do in the future let's talk and so i sent them a little, you know, I didn't tell them too much, but they came back with a cease and desist fax after that saying the, you're breaking copyright and blah de blah de, blah So I took it to a copyright lawyer and he said, oh, it would be a very interesting case to take on but it would be very expensive you know and they know that because there's you know international copyright laws to go navigate and so on yeah that side of it it's a it's not the most interesting part of the job but it, it was something that we ended up working out a deal with them and i think they sort of started to realize once we'd started touring internationally that we weren't just some little tin pot you know operation that we were we ended up getting rights to play you know in festivals all over the world and touring america and and so so on so it did work out okay but we were so naive in the early days that we just kind of stumbled into it
1: I'm not really certain of the history behind silent film scores but back when Buster Keaton was making these films or indeed any other director was making silent films were scores specifically written to be performed for these films short or, or feature film length or was it like pretty much pianists or or organists would make stuff up on the spot. Were there standard film scores that sort of maybe went around from place to place? How did it work?
6: Yeah, there were. There were the films that would just turn up and there would be a, an in house pianist or sometimes a small band and they would then play often sight unseen but they would have a bag of tricks that they could they'd have the chase music and they'd have the love music and the, and often it would be the same music for each film. It was actually the genesis of a lot of this film scoring was I reckon that a lot of these little theatres where musicians got to pretty much have a regular gig and they would be improvising, you know, you'd call it multimedia improvisation these days. They were The first film scorers, but there were other films that would turn up with a score, maybe fully scored. Sometimes they would have this is the love theme, this is the chase music, this is the leitmotif for the bad guy, you know, and so they'd give a few clues. And then it would be up to the the musician or musicians to insert it at the right places. And so it was lovely and and loose. But there are other people like Charlie Chaplin was renowned for writing his own scores for his films. And in a way, I mean, he was for a filmmaker, he was a pretty good composer, but he was no genius composer. And the Chaplin estate, I believe, very precious about. Other people writing scores to his films They want the films to be seen the way Chaplin wanted them to be seen With the music that he wrote And that's fair enough But some of those films could really do with a bit of a spring clean You know, like, it could be amazing to see some new scores to them So in a way, you know, they can date more quickly If you use the original scores, in my opinion anyway So I think that was a lovely thing about Keaton Was he was a blank canvas for us It was literally a film with no score score. This beautiful film with no score and as we sat there writing to it, it felt like when you were watching it and you came up with a piece of music and you placed it to the film, if it was the right bit of music it almost was like the film turned to colour. You know, it was just suddenly the emotion was right and or the you know the energy was right and suddenly that scene suddenly makes sense or the structure of the film the music that we'd write would mirror the structure of the film and suddenly you're writing this amazing bit of music because the film has got such a great structure to it
1: Also just sort of thinking about the 90s in general maybe even back to the 80s, Mick Thomas of Weddings, Parties, Anything had written a score for the sentimental bloke and Jen Anderson uh, wrote the score for A String Quartet for Pandora's Box, the Louise Brooks film Did you see any of those films at the time? Were they an inspiration to you?
6: I'd heard of the Mick Thomas one but I never saw it and when we were, I think I I even went to see it My memory of it is We had a lot of help From a fella called John Rouse Who ran the Nova Cinema Who used to run The Valhalla Cinema In Melbourne And he was A tremendous help Just with things Like copyright And he was the one Who produced The Jen Anderson film And so, he was kind of excited when I told him that we were going to take on this project. And so, I think for their final show, he got me tickets to go and see the Jen Anderson production. So, that was the first time I'd actually seen a silent film with live music. And I went straight from that show to our first rehearsal, like literally came out of the cinema and got on my bike and rode to our rehearsal and just, and we were sitting there and I thought, well, I've just seen what it could be like. That was a coincidence It was interesting Because her Like the way she scored it She did a Very traditional kind of She scored it all out On paper Like she wrote the score out For a quartet And They had a click track To keep in time And it was It's a very It's a beautiful film But my god It's really long It's like two hours long Plus I think and it's a big ask to write two hours of music with a string quartet. I think, you know, there were some beautiful moments, but it did feel like it was a big stretch for them to, personally, I felt there were times when I was kind of feeling like it needed a big orchestra here or something like that. The advantage of our band was that, A, we're all multi-instrumentalists, so we there were five of us in the band, but there was upwards of, 14 instruments that we can draw on. So, our accordion player is also a mandolin player and a very good cellist, and he can play a mean harmonica and a very bad saxophone. And I was classically trained as a flautist, but I play the banjo and i you know, a pretty terrible clarinet player. And, you know, our guitarist has played drums and did all the foley and percussion and things like that. So, We could go from a string quartet into a crazy ragtime jazz feel into a John Zorn kind of groove. We all had a very Catholic taste in music, so we loved the kind of the um, slapstick style of music, but we also loved the discordant, you know, the contemporary sort of styles of music as well. And we loved films like Ennio Morricone and things like that. So we could draw in a lot of different styles and sort of hopefully mesh them together so that you know like I think that's why the scores succeeded is because there were a lot of different elements in there and we managed to join the modules together in a way that made it seem reasonably seamless I think.
1: In prep for our conversation I had a chance to watch a couple of times your version, well, I can call it that, of Sherlock Junior, the the film with your score, it fascinated me. I, mean, I wanted to know that you or the group, as composers, I mean, you've gone and said that you drew inspiration from all sorts of places, and you know, and you cite Enya Morricone, for example. What does a composer who's working for a silent film have to take into account that maybe a composer for a talky film may not? Because I mean Aside from having to fill up the space for an entire movie Which someone who's doing for a talkie would never have to do But are you having to musically explain things more to an audience?
6: There's already a language established now for movies You know, like but back when silent movies were made Scores were in their, you know, like movies They were in their infancy And so we can look back at these movies With this language that has been, which has evolved and developed And apply that to these old movies that when you see them, often they've got a creaky organ or piano in the background that bears no resemblance to what's going on on the screen. I think that's the nice thing about it. It's a blank canvas, like you said, and we can explore what happens if we, like at the end of Sherlock Junior, Well, there's a comic moment right at the end of the film where he's scratching his head looking at, at this couple who have just had babies wondering how to have babies. And, you know, for us that was like let's put in a horror theme right there. The thought of having babies is so scary for us at that time. And so, yeah, we get that choice. So I think if you're going to do a talkie film, or a talkie film, as a a contemporary film, yes, you've got dialogue that you have to underscore. I think it's much more about underscoring these days. And, I mean, my few times when I've been in a sound studio where they're mixing the film, it's always a case of the, the composer and the sound designer kind of wrestling over whether the foley and the sound effects are going to be over the top or underneath the score, you know. like an, And I think it would be quite frustrating to spend this time writing a beautiful score and then have it down at 30% while this, the car chase is up at 70%. I think there's a lot of that happening as well. There's moments, I suppose, in films where the score takes over, but a lot of the time it's, it's not there to be noticed.
1: That's interesting because I know that that's often something thing that's said about scores for films is that it should be there to just underlie the story and not be noticed. But, I mean, just re-watching through, not just the Sherlock Jr. with your score, but it seems like a lot of the versions, and certainly if you look on YouTube or go to your DVDs, a lot of these silent films have... Several different scores going for them And it seems like they're all Trying to be part of the story And to be honest with you, I think it works Really quite well, it seems to me like The silent film scores, I mean They can possibly get in the way if they're Not done right, but if done well Then it seems to me like they're an equal part Of the story
6: Oh, I think so. I hope so. Well, it's interesting because the best compliment you can get after a show is that people say, you know, I started to forget you were there. We were watching everything you are doing at the start and then after a while i just got into the film and i had to keep reminding myself that there were people on stage playing the score and that's a to us that's a great compliment because it means we're doing our job and there are times when we like to poke our head up and make a you know an audio gag you know like we're trying to make buster look as good as he possibly can and i think too like buster he's got all these jokes and we like to kind of feel like well, if you're going to make that joke, we're going to make this joke, so we're going to do an audio joke to match your visual joke, and I think hopefully they interlock or they don't compete with each other. They actually just lift the film up a bit.
1: How do you guys decide what instruments work best for a particular character or a particular moment in the film? You said that you're all got like about fourteen or fifteen different instruments at the collective band's disposal, and like for instance, there's a moment in Sherlock Jr where the, the projectionist has been framed for the theft of the stopwatch and he's checking everyone's pockets and we hear the harmonica it has a, a sinister sound or an investigative sound. Associate with it What goes through you As a composer's mind Is it enough to just Come up with a melody Or do you think This will work better With a harmonica Or this will work better With a flute
6: Um, I mean I think The arranging is that's one of the fun bits. We're coming up with the music is the bit that you're sort of searching for the inspiration and then the arranging, often we'll, we, you know, we'll use the same bit of music two or three times in a movie, but we'll have arranged them with a different instrumentation or some other instrument taking the lead so that you actually don't notice that it's the same bit of music where, well, you know, hopefully it's it might even have a different feel. It might be turned into a waltz or something. I mean, the, we used a lot of flute in Sherlock Jr. because we felt that it had that kind of like maybe a Mission Impossible kind of a vibe to it it was kind of a bit jazzy and a bit sexy the harmonica choice was I think I don't know I mean that those things you don't I mean it's a long time ago that we wrote it but I think we just came up with a bit of music and and the harmonica seemed to fit It's often just a, a case of when you play something You play it against the film And you can tell whether that's lifting the film Or if it's kind of just not doing anything So then But, you know, we definitely have choices And some of them are obvious Violin for the love is a common sort of thing to do You know, we're not trying to break any, you know New ground with a lot of things It's just like it's, There's things that you know work So you go with those But, I mean, there's also lovely chance to do things like that in another movie cops there's a police band so you know i mentioned i play bad clarinet and phil plays bad saxophone and our bass player happens to be a very good tuba player and so we go well let's make up a really bad police band you know (laughs) and make it deliberately because we're not very good at our instruments we'll make it sound like this police band is really bad not that we're really bad that that's the we're doing it deliberately so you know we get to muck around with those sort of things and just i guess it keeps keeps it interesting for us
1: i'm also interested in how you approach the i, I don't know if, I, I guess i'll call it the texture of the composition so like the opening of sherlock jr so the opening credits you have this music that sounds very i don't know have i used the word yet detectivey <music> Which you also come back to in that moment of investigation and also there's something that's both very funny but also very suspenseful about the moment when the projectionist is dreaming and he is Sherlock and mm. you see the, the he's looking at all the various characters in the manner as he's trying to sort of determine what's happened to the pearls
6: so I remember that we left the credit music the opening credit music till the very end end i think that was the last thing we wrote i think because we we were like ah there's so much in this movie we'll wait till the end to write the we'll write the beginning at the the last thing one of the things that we wanted to go with was the james bond kind of style of you know mission impossible james bond we've got a canon of those styles of film scores to choose from now that we like to kind of refer to but playing them and on old fashioned acoustic instruments. And that was kind of how that, like I said earlier, the genesis of the band was to explore different styles of music, but using traditional instruments and seeing how that came out. And often it sort of has a bit of a quirky comic kind of sound to it. We were using, you know, th- throwing around a few of those chord changes from those kinds of movies but you're playing it on a banjo or you're playing it on a mandolin or something or a harmonica they seem to lend themselves to the Buster Keaton kind of do-it-yourself ethos so that opening theme yeah, we just started playing around with the James Bond kind of riff and then took it somewhere else and came up with that, I guess.
1: You've done quite a few films, haven't you? At least, what, about a dozen Buster Keaton short and at five reeler films as well?
6: Yeah, I was trying to think of how many we've done... So if I can try and do them in order, we did Our Hospitality first and then we did Cops and Sherlock Junior. We did Go West. We've done One Week and The Boat and The Playhouse. They're three shorts. We've done The General, um, which we ended up doing with a full orchestral score as well. So we sort of had the band backed by a a sort of a half-size orchestra, which was fun, and we're hoping to do that again with a full symphony orchestra soon. And then we've also done a few non-Buster Keaton films. We got asked to write a film score to a film called Laborer's Love, which was the oldest surviving Chinese silent film, which was interesting. We went to play that in China, so that was really interesting. We were playing at a theatre festival in China and they wanted us to do, as well as doing Sherlock Jr., they'd asked us if we'd write this Chinese silent film score. So, that was really fun. We've done a film called White Zombie, which actually is not a silent film, and that has dialogue. So, that was interesting as well. That was a really different process.
1: I saw that one at the Astor, but I don't recall whether that was with you guys or whether that was just a regular screening. I'm struggling to remember.
6: It possibly was with us because I don't know if they have shown it otherwise but that was fun I mean that was really difficult too because that was actually where we had to start to navigate the issue of oh they're talking, what are we going to do now? Do we sit there and just let them talk or do we try and underscore it? And I mean fortunately it was made in the very early days of talkies so there was a lot of silent film techniques in it and there was a huge, the last sort of 20 minutes of the film there's I think there's hardly any dialogue at all and the score that they had already on it was good, but... It's sort of there's a lot of looping and there's, they just have a bit of music that would loop around and things so I thought it was a good chance for us to try something other than Buster Keaton comedy
1: you've taken the Buster Keaton films all around the world we were speaking before we started recording about my friend and fellow podcaster Heather Drain who's on this episode that she'd seen you guys in Arkansas which absolutely blew me away when she told me but where else have you been so you've been to China you've toured around the states
6: we took it to the Embra festival in 99 and that was was successful beyond our wildest dreams we actually had sean connery come to see it so it was amazing because there's a one bit where we quote the james bond theme in sherlock jr and it was like sean connery is sitting watching this while i'm playing the james bond theme on my banjo you know so that was amazing but then we've done festivals everywhere from south africa to brazil we've done tours across europe ireland the uk right across north america china korea Singapore, New Zealand... It's been amazing. And that was mainly between about, you know, 96 to about 2003. And we did three-week season at the New Victory Theatre, which is on Broadway in New York. And so it was very kind to us. It was a fantastic project. Our tour across the states was organised by an agent who did schools entertainment. And so basically we would do two shows a day. They'd just bus in. I think the one we did in Arkansas was in school kids from all over the state. And that inwood would played to a thousand you know school kids, and it was amazing because school kids going to see a silent movie like you know you can imagine people they'd just be rolling their eyes going what are we going to see this for but as soon as it started they were hooked they were totally into it they were booing the bad guys and cheering the good uh, cheering the you know like it was like a good old-fashioned it's a interactive experience and that's one of the things i didn't sort of mention was the amazing thing about playing live when you're on stage is that there's it's like a triangle of energy happening there's the audience watching the film and listening to the band there's the band watching the film and listening to the audience reaction so we like we get a buzz every time they laugh at something that happens on the film and usually we've matched that gag with a musical gag as well so we sort of, and so it's like this energy going and then they they're getting a kick out of we'll do a wacky sound effect or something so they'll laugh at one of our you know and so this energy is going between the band and the audience and the audience and the film and the film and the band and the and the band and the film and it's just bouncing back and forward in this amazing triangle and it just sort of like it has this perfect tension which is like a real buzz as a musician which you don't get in a, any other kind of performance I think
1: Notwithstanding the year that we've just had with COVID how many years had it been since you guys had played together before this new screening of Sherlock Junior coming up
6: It had been I think 2016 That feels about right Which is probably the longest we've been without doing a gig So we've never split up We've never retired We've always just gone into remission And it's a bit hard now Because our founding member and front person Simon Who plays guitar and percussion and drums And when we're playing as a band is the lead singer Um, He's now living in London and has a young family. And so we have done gigs where, you know, he would fly out and would do a bit of touring and then he'd fly back again. But of course, we tried to get that happening and realised that very quickly because Australia's borders are closed, he wasn't going to make it. So we've got a substitute Simon for this performance, but we're hoping that towards the end of the year, he'll be able to get back, he'll get his his vaccination and we'll be off and running again.
1: So what have you guys been doing in the interim?
6: Oh, well, we're all musicians playing in different groups and entities and stats of our bass player Mark is very in demand for lots of different bands, jazz and all kinds of other stuff. Phil, who's the accordionist and cellist, is I think he's now working as a full time as a lecturer in music and composition. Steph, who's the fiddle player, he's a full-time sound designer and theatre technician and does a lot of scores and soundtracks for theatre. So we're all keeping busy. I did a lot of theatre stuff as well and now I'm just sort of living the easy life of teaching banjo and playing in bands and occasionally writing tunes and putting out CDs and stuff like that. Sounds idyllic. Yeah, it's lovely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've already mentioned that you have a plan to do later on this year, the screening of The General with an orchestra, which you said you've already done it with a half orchestra, but you might do with a, a larger scale, which sounds very, very exciting. Any plans beyond that or is Simon's long distance getting in the way of
6: that? Um, yes. Look, we would. It's funny. We do want to write new stuff. It's a little bit challenging with one member on the other side of the world, so the orchestra score is the big one that we want to do. We, we want to make it available so that we can tour and pick up an orchestra where we're, wherever we go. So, you know, the idea is that let's dream on a bit. We get invited to play in London and the London Philharmonic Orchestra, we have the score available and then we come and sit up the front with the orchestra behind us and there'll be bits where we're playing, there's bits when the orchestra's playing and there's bits when we're both playing together kind of thing. Because for a film like The General... It's so massive and some of the themes need to be orchestral to convey the epicness of the story. A little five-piece band, even if we can have cello and violin and double bass bowing till their bows are breaking, it doesn't create the kind of drama that we're looking for. So that's the plan. We'd like to get that up and running. We've also just happened to, I think we've found a nice, very simpatico agent who's in a position to help us line that sort of stuff up. So fingers crossed that's what'll happen post-COVID.
1: Magnificent. I'm so looking forward to coming out to see the general when you do get it done here. Gus, thank you so much for your time this evening. Really, really appreciate it.
6: Lovely. Thanks, Morris.
2: We were back and we were talking about Buster Keaton, and I mentioned that documentary earlier, um, A Hard Act to Follow, which I have to – I really, really have to recommend that documentary. Like I said, seeing it again all these years later, it still blew me away. I like how much they rely on Buster Keaton interviews for it because they – Definitely had a lot of good interviews with him and were able to utilize those, utilize him as almost a voiceover to his own life at times. There was also, in 2018, there was a documentary called The Great Buster that Peter Bogdanovich put together, which we talked a little bit about before. I like part of it. I don't like part of it. A hard act to follow is very much this is Buster Keaton's story A lot of it told through Buster Keaton's words, whereas the Great Buster was a lot of talking heads. And as soon as fucking Quentin Tarantino showed up, I was so angry. (laughs) I was was tickled. (laughs) I was tickled when Werner Herzog showed up and started talking about how funny Buster Keaton was, because to hear Werner Herzog talk about something being funny at all is Pretty goddamn hilarious. The thing I did like about The Great Buster was that Bogdanovich literally skips over the 1920s. This whole episode we've been talking about films from the 1920s, he skips over the 1920s to take us to the end of Keaton's life and then show us the 1920s in order for us to end on a high note, which is a really smart thing to do because you cannot get better than those 1920s films. And for him to just show us this life and be like, okay, yeah, we'll get back to that later. And then it's almost like F for fake where Wells tells you, I'm going to lie to you for however many minutes and, or I'm going to tell the truth for however many minutes. And then I might lie to you. And it's basically like that. It's like, here's this whole story And then here's the magic at the end. Like, once we get to the end of Buster's life, it's like, now here's the reason why we're really talking about him. Here are these films that will just continue to enthrall you to this day. And I thought that was a
1: really smart thing that he did. I really wish that more documentaries would take that approach because it's uh here's the humble beginnings, here's the peak of their creativity or popularity, and it's all downhill from their folks, and then there's a token epilogue saying, But we should remember the magic. And Peter Bogdanovich is essentially saying, All right, let's get this other stuff out of the way. It really happened. Okay, fair enough but making a good chunk of the film, this is why we love him. It was a brilliant move, but it's also in a way not surprising coming from Bogdanovich who, as I said before, is like a walking encyclopedia of film and he's wanting to tell more the story of Buster as filmmaker, Buster as creative genius rather than just sort of wallow in the negativity or the, the sad things. And he did have, some sad stuff go on for a good chunk of his life, but he says the reason why we're still talking about him today as a whole, and why we're doing this podcast, is to recognise that brilliance that he had. And I mean, I, look, I after we finish recording this over the coming weeks, I do want to sort of go back to some of those films which maybe people weren't that wrapped with. I didn't even know existed until you know very recently, because I want to get more of a full story. But I just love. As you say, Mike, the fact that he decided, right, this is the magical part and this is why you should remember him. So, it might have even worked if he'd said, right, we're only going to do a documentary about that. But, you know, that might have been disingenuous.
2: Towards the end of Keaton's life, he was in two relatively short films. Uh, One was called Film that Samuel Beckett co-directed. And the other one was a film called The Rail Rotter. That was a Canadian National Board of Film film, and it really shows you how gorgeous Canada is.
6: It's pronounced
2: Canada. There are also two documentaries that go with these films that he was in. With The Rail Rodder, there's one called Buster Keaton Rides Again. And so The Rail Rodder is, what, half an hour long, and Buster Keaton Rides Again is an hour and a half long. I know that it, it's doesn't make any sense that you would ever talk about a film longer than the film runs. I'm sure this, this podcast has never been guilty of that. Never. <laughs> <laughs> but with film, you also have one called not film, which takes it's, it's described as a film essay. And I have to say, they spend a lot of time talking about Beckett, even more than Keaton. So if you're really hardcore into Keaton, maybe go ahead and skip not film. Though, from a film lover's perspective, it was a really well-put-together thing, and I really enjoyed it. And I liked learning more about Samuel Beckett. But it was interesting that both of these later films, both uh, 64, 65, I think they were made, have these companion pieces that are... I think not film is two hours and fifteen minutes, and film itself is twenty minutes. So it's it really goes into the behind the scenes way more about Beckett and stuff than the actual film itself. And film is a very very avant garde little movie, and I really I recommend it a lot. And it's funny because Buster is in it; he's the main character, but you rarely see his face, which is kind of a shame because his face is one of his best features, that whole thing, like him in that rail Rodder short. Oh my God. Yeah. He's not doing the tumbles, the splits, the falls, all those kind of things. But that timing, the timing of how to look, when to look, how to do the double takes him when he's finds the, the boater finds the pork pie hat inside of this little rinky dink railroad car that he's driving across the country. In, oh, I loved it. And just to see
1: him just, just the way the guy puts on clothes he can make putting on clothes like an event yeah that there's that uh, big fur coat or whatever it is that's just sitting in that in that little Carriage that's on this uh, rinky-dink rail cart that he's travelling across Canada in. Uh, it, it seems like it's almost like a TARDIS because every time he puts his hand in, he's always bringing something else out, bringing out uh, cooking utensils, making himself breakfast, lunch, or dinner, finding coats, finding all sorts of things. And that that was a large part of the magic, a large part of the humour in that film. And I just like that if this was his last film, it sort of went back, I think, to how he started making films. I mean, it's – I mean, I, I know he didn't direct it. This was just him as actor, but it went back to the spirit of the very early films. There's none of the grand sweep of the films that we've just been talking about, but this could have very easily been made as one of his Buster Keaton independent studio films short films, it fits in with that. And it's it's wordless. So it's it's very much a a homage to himself, if you will. But just, yeah, beautifully, really, really sweet film. I liked it a lot.
2: It was interesting, though, to me that they didn't shoot it like a Buster Keaton film insofar as there's um, one moment where the little car that he's in breaks down. So he gets out and he starts to work on this car. And while he's doing that, he's on a bridge – and it's a swivel bridge. So the bridge will swivel, a boat will come through, the bridge will swivel back. They didn't shoot it the way that I was kind of hoping that they would shoot it because he doesn't, he's not aware that the bridge has moved, but he's also in no danger. Like I was hoping that it'd be one of those things where while the bridge has moved and it's now, he's very close to the water. Like you would see him almost step back or do those kind of things. There's no you know, I kept talking about those, those, those wide shots of him where you could see all the surrounding area. And there were a lot of times where they just couldn't get those shots. And there were also not a lot of shots where you got to see how in danger he was. Like there's a moment where a train's coming towards him. He's going towards the train eventually, you know, like he shifts and moves on to the other track. I really wish that that was shot at a different angle. Heather, you mentioned that short, The Art of the Gag, and I watched that as well, and they had one shot in there, and I'm trying to remember which short it was from, but it was him hiding on a tire behind a car, and they showed, like, here's how you might show it, and here's Buster, and he gets in this tire, and the car pulls off, and he's still on this tire, and he realized that it's a tire out front of a vulcanizing place, and then it's like, okay, here's how it could have played, but here's how he played it. And they shoot it from a different angle, and they show him get onto the tire from almost like the tire uh side of the car, right, from the back side of it. And then the car drives off. And it was much funnier. And it just felt like – and I'm not trying to, to break Gerald Potterton's chops on the rail rotter; He probably had to shoot it fast, had to shoot it quick. It was made for Canadian funding, you know, those kind of things – probably didn't have all the time in the world that he wanted to on this. But there were a lot of times where I was like, that probably could have been shot funnier.
0: I enjoyed it. And it's, I mean, yeah, it's definitely, you know, you get the, the beauty of both Buster, you know, and the Canadian, the rural Canadian land, which Canada is a gorgeous country. But it really, to me felt almost like an educational short, like something you would watch as a kid. And I think part of that's probably because exactly yeah, and I was trying to pinpoint that, actually, and I'm like, well, maybe it's because it's kind of like a travelogue. But you pointing that out, Mike, like that, I think that is also why it kind of feels like an educational short, because it's not really, I mean, there's some funny stuff in it. But it's done funny, like you'd see on a kid's show, maybe not even quite as kid's show, because that would be more imaginative and, and colorful. It's just, yeah, it's you kind of wish like, man, just let,
1: let Buster direct those. I didn't get a chance to look up any of the history behind that, but like you two, I got the distinct impression that this was – A travelogue but I think the fact that we have Buster Keaton in it is more like a bonus I mean it yeah sure it's not necessarily going to be cited as one of his most classic films or anything like that but I just love the fact oh we have a travelogue oh there's Buster Keaton doing some mildly funny stuff and I just sort of take that as a bonus and uh, that that sort of thinking yeah yeah you're right it could have been maybe done better if it had been a Buster Keaton film but once again this is a travelogue that just happens to have one of the greatest film comedians of all time in it. And there's one thing that I I was reading in an essay that sort of points to that sequence in the film that you were talking about, Mike, where the railroad bridge moves and he's completely unaware of it. Uh, and, yeah, you're right, no danger there, which there was plenty of danger in those classic era films but that's the sort of gag that would only take place in a silent movie because like you say for instance is um the moment in the general where he's i think throwing wood into the caboose you know to get the uh to get the engine working and he's completely oblivious we can see all the soldiers advancing the other way both the southern soldiers and the northern soldiers heading in that direction he's completely unaware that all of this is taking place which we think well that's ridiculous but of course it's the world of the silent movie it's a silent gag he we don't hear it so he doesn't hear it and i think it's a similar sort of gag that they're doing here in this 1965 film although maybe that's less about the audio and more about why does he not have this peripheral vision but I think the mentality is still the same from those old silent era films. They don't, we don't hear it, so they don't hear it.
2: Once the bridge swivels back, he gets into the car and it just starts right up. And again, it would have been one of those things where the car probably should have started before the bridge got back. So we are aware, like, hey, this could fall right off the edge of it, but it meets right up, you know, just – just kind of like those trucks, those trucks going under the one bridge uh in Seven Chances and just like, oh, OK, like he might not have even been aware that there was a gap in the road, you know, be, but we're aware because of the way that it's being shot, that we can see that that bridge is out, that we can see the other bridge collapsing, but he doesn't necessarily see it. We need to have that privileged position, I think, sometimes, but and he knows that, which is why we are enjoying his film so much even today. It's just like this comedy transcends time because it was so well put together. All right. We're going to take one more break and play a preview for next week's show. Kelly,
4: what the hell are you doing here? Looking after the Colonel. That's what. Shoot him. And let's get the hell out of here. Shoot him. We don't get the gold. What gold? Proposition. Thought you might be interested in helping me out. Oh, I want you to set up a barrage for me. Yeah. If you whisper one word about the gold to these guys, I'm going to have you bounce from this outfit so fast your feet won't even touch the ground. Okay, Kelly. What is it? I want the intelligence report for this whole sector, and I need them in the next two hours. That's nice. What's in it for me? It's behind enemy lines. I got three Shermans outside. His name's Hardball.
1: A Sherman can give you a very nice edge. These are my boys. It's still up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, it ain't. Look, baby, I'm kind of hung up. I need about sixty feet of bridge. Listen, kid, they haven't got your back in the nut water again, have they? I don't need you. Sixty feet of bridge, I can pick up almost anywhere. Schmuck. All right,
3: all right. I need at least hundred guys. Where do I find a hundred men just like that?
4: Louthall, better show up, Kelly. Come on, let's move it up. But my hair is still in curve.
0: Oh, sure, I'll get out. I'll show you out with this thing. Hey, nobody said anything about slapping a thirty-caliber machine gun all over the country. I'll make you fifty dollars if you carry the machine gun, huh? Flip
6: fire! I thought you said three Shermans. <laughs> Those nuts have brought half the army
2: with
0: them. What is this? Oh, what is this? A ball game? Who are these guys?
6: My friends, okay.
0: Who's that bunch of refugees over there? The band. The band. What do we need a band for? Oh, little pink pumpkin, beautiful people.
4: You see, we're just a private enterprise operation. Those freaks. That ain't an army. It's a circus. Crime.
2: that's right we'll be back next week with a look at kelly's heroes until then i want to thank this week's co-host morris and heather heather what has been keeping you busy
0: my article on the blood, sweat, and tears of old school country music called Crowbars and Cowtowns is in the brand new zine titled Drawl. Not draw, drawl. Um, this is a one of a kind publication that's filled with cool articles, comic strips, art. It's absolutely fantastic. And uh, you can buy it over at com.
2: And Morris, what's happening with you, sir?
1: Next weekend, I'm doing something that I normally never do. That's recording two podcasts. I try to separate them by a week each. So very busy preparing for C here. And our beloved Tim is returning to the show. So um yeah, big yay for that. And he selected for his first film back one which I'm thinking, oh, my Lord, how are we going to do this? It's a film by Craig Brewer, Black Snake Moan, with Christina Ricci and Samuel L. Jackson. And the last time we tried to cover a Craig Brewer film on the podcast, Uh, well, maybe that's a story left for off the air. And love that album next weekend. Also, I'll be recording an interview with a wonderful uh, local singer, songwriter, musician, Sarah Carroll. She was married to one of Melbourne's musical heroes, Chris Wilson, who sadly passed away about two or three years ago of uh, pancreatic cancer. His most beloved album called Live at the Continental came out in 1994, a hugely important album, not just for him, but just one of the great all-time Australian live albums. That has been re-released with about – a whole CD worth of extra material that wasn't released on the original live album. So I'll be talking with Sarah about the re-release of this terrific record and about a lot of her own music. And they have two extremely talented sons who are great musicians and songwriters of their own. So we'll be talking about the whole Wilson Carroll family dynasty. So looking extremely forward to that.
2: Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thank you to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.